VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning in to the program. It's Thursday, April the 13th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. We're looking forward to speaking with you on a topic of your choosing this morning. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue, 273-5211. Wait now. 709-273-5211. Or elsewhere, toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, after a couple of glorious days, a bit of barbecue weather. I actually barbecued last night. I used to barbecue mostly throughout the winter, unless it was really terrible out, but I've kind of given up that practice in recent years. But had the queue on yesterday, but here we go. Socked in tight with the pea soup fog here in St. John's this morning. Icebergs are in. Saw a couple off of Petty Harbor yesterday, so that will be for the fascination, especially for the visitors to the province. So maybe a bit of rain in the forecast, but I don't know if you saw any of the weather news coming from the state of Florida. And, of course, Easter week, Florida has been a popular destination for the travelers, and many snowbirds will make their winter home in Florida. Get a load of this. Yesterday in Fort Lauderdale, there was 20 inches of rain fell in 12 hours. Put that onto the metric for us uh, here in Canada. So 500 millimeters of rain in 12 hours. That's 41 millimeters per hour. Some of the visuals that you see, for instance, at one of the airports in Fort Lauderdale, or the airport in Fort Lauderdale, you could see the waves on the runway. Truly a remarkable amount of rain. Hopefully we don't get anything like that around here. All right, so over the course of 42 locations, 280 teams, the provincial hockey tournaments are half over. So this week, with the beginning of the week, we saw the U13s and the U18s. Congratulations to everyone who participated. And yes, certainly congratulations to the winners. So now we'll kick off with the U11s and the U15s today. All right, the Raptors, for you basketball fans, ugh. I mean, after an up-and-down season, 41-41, and 41, they had a play-in game. That's a one-game play-in to see if they can qualify for the last playoff spot. Playing the Chicago Bulls yesterday, had a 19-point lead, blew it. They're out. Season's over. They only hit 50% of their free throws yesterday, including a couple with 12 seconds to go. Siakam on the free throw line. Missed them both, and out go the Raptors. A couple of golf notes. So, over the weekend, many people would have been tuned into the Masters Tournament in Augusta, Georgia. Really one of the most visually stunning golf courses in the world, and a terrific competition. So, it was on this date, many of you will remember, in 1986, Jack Nicklaus won his sixth uh, Masters Tournament, his 18th and final major, to become the oldest winner at Augusta, Pretty cool stuff. He had a one-stroke victory over Greg Norman and Tom Kite. Also, on this date in 1997, for his first of five Masters, Tiger Woods won. And, of course, that was just one of those onto-the-world stage blowout victories that Woods enjoyed many of over his career. One by 12 shots, 1997. All right. What do we got here? Oh, and I saw Terry Hart, who's a great follow on Twitter. For good news and sports updates and the like, Terry is just a class fella, and it reflects in the way he uses social media. So he's keeping an eye on the Grand Slam at curling and Team Guzhu coming off of silver at the Worlds. They just beat Team Adine for the third straight time, of course, from Sweden. So yesterday beat Adine and Kui. They're 3-0, so go get them, Team Guzhu. All right. Price of gas, yeah, for the third straight week, gas is up. So we've been talking about some of the numbers in electric vehicles. A big uptick, you know, 125% increase in purchasing electric vehicles, 53% in the hybrid world. So some 4.4% of the vehicles bought last year were hybrids or electric vehicles. And the tide is very quickly changing in certain parts of the country. But it makes you wonder how quick some people might consider that alternative for their vehicle. 
when you just look at the price of the pumps. So today, gas up 7.1 cents. That means it's a buck 81 per litre here on the Avalon Peninsula. Adonal Apoil, a uh, 197 per liter. Parts of Labrador, $2.68 on the southern coast. Furnace oil up almost seven cents. We're going to get into the conversation regarding summer blends, right? So now the fuel price, uh, furnace oil, pardon me, up. Stove oil up. But at the diesel, because of summer blend or seasonal blend transition, it actually saw a decrease of some five cents. Ugh, the prices are just mind boggling. Okay. And of course, half of the provincial gas tax, that will remain. Uh, in place, just charging half of it until this time next year, which is a break for some, but anyway, you want to take it on. Let's go. Okay. So yesterday we heard from the CEO of Newfoundland Labrador Hydro, Jennifer Williams, about the most recent testing of the Musgrave Falls project, in particular the Labrador Island Link. Okay. So Miss Williams says that the project is essentially commissioned, given the success of the 700 megawatt testing. We didn't see any trips to the system, so I guess that's good news that they seem to have have it uh, figured out. But I do find some of this still a little bit confusing, and there's still lots of questions out there. Number one, we don't know what the final price tag is. So the essentially final commission is not necessarily the end of the road. There's going to be weeks or months while they finalize the paperwork between Hydro, the province, and the federal government. Okay, so we still don't know what the final price tag is, but it's going to be more than the last number we heard. That you can bet your bottom dollar on. There's also questions about 700 megawatts. Look, I don't, I'm not an electrical engineer, so I don't know, but here's what the numbers say. So we're told maximum output at Muskrat Falls is 824 megawatts. Now, there's going to be power loss before it makes its way to Soldier's Pond, so I don't think we're ever going to see a full flow and utilization of 824 megawatts, or at least that's what I'm told. But there's still a long way between that number and 700 megawatts. Now, we did find out yesterday there's going to be further testing for 900 megawatts, which I assume includes some recall power from the upper Churchill. So there are some questions there. The big price tag is the number one question. But Miss Williams, pretty proud of her employees, as she said. You know, it's fair enough it's emotional. And it's been a long road for the folks at Nalcor. But she was saying that she got her positivity uh, an optimism about the project from her staff, fair enough. And, of course, Miss Williams, Rob Collett, they inherited the project. They're not there from uh, day one. But she goes on to talk about the fact that the staff have be really been beaten and battered by the general public. The vitriol has been relentless. It certainly has been when you talk about aimed at what was once known as Nalcor and now aimed at Hydro. But I don't think I've ever heard folks who are being given a task to work on whatever their professional background is to try to get this project over the finish line you know the aim has been at the sanction itself i mean this was originally sanctioned back in 2012 and here we are in 2023 so you know some of the notables at the helm whether it be mr martin or mr bennett and others and some of the names that we found out during the leblanc inquiry that really painted a very dire picture of the lack of honesty and transparency and the duty to document that we've been talking about ever since so I don't think people are holding any grudges against the workers at Hydro, those who weren't involved in the decision gates at the, at the initial stages, weren't involved in any of the mishandling of the information that eventually came to light. They were doing their job. So I know a couple of people working at Hydro. I never once looked at them and thought, damn you, and Muskrat Falls. You know, I, so anyway, Miss Williams is trying to make that point that the employees have worked diligently to try to get this project further to completion, but we're not quite there yet. If you want to take it on, we can do it. Also with the software. So obviously they've identified what the problem was and has, the problem has been overcome for now. 
But then we're also told we're to anticipate or to expect a newer version of the software at some time in the future. Ms. Williams says she's confident with the software they have now, but there is a newer version coming. What that might mean for operations, really don't know. But anyway, you want to take it on, we can do it. And there's a big backlog. We had a caller yesterday regarding the Labrador Ferry. And because there wasn't a timely update on the 511 app, he was unable to make the ferry on time. And so it's been days on end while they try to deal with ice conditions. And the Henry Larson has been up there monitoring the ice. Yesterday they got some runs in. They're trying to deal with the backlog. Apparently there's some 10 to 12 transport trucks still waiting to get in to Labrador with, of course, what would be essential goods. But I think it's really prompted some folks in Labrador to, now in numbers, send emails not only about the timeliness of updates and what have you, and their frustrations and additional costs that they have to bear because they've been stuck on one side or another, but also they're now going right down the fixed link road. And it was for one person at the beginning of the week, and now overnight a half dozen. So they're talking about all the issues regarding the ferry system, and every single one of those emails uh, wrapped up by saying, the fixed link would uh, overcome all of these particular matters. Some people also drawing the cost issue with Marine Atlantic and what have you. But anyway, they want us to talk about the fixed link, and hopefully one of them will call. I invited all of them, respectfully, to call the show to hash out their concerns with the ferry system and or what the fixed link might mean and their proposed economic upside if that link ever came to pass. But anyway, you want to take it on? We can do it. All right, so now we know the folks in the K-12 system are on their Easter break. And I'm always hoping to talk more and more about education because, I guess for the obvious reasons, but I had a listener via private messaging last night talk about have we really done the right things, made the right moves insofar as consolidating what was once as many as 20 school districts and to the one NLESD, and now that's gone. It's all blended into the Department of Education. So the point that the person was making, I think, is a realistic one and something we, can, uh, we should be talking about. No longer do we have all of those local voices to ensure that, you know, we acknowledge there might be some differences in different parts of the province, even though a streamlined, equitable opportunity, the same type of curriculum, the same professionally trained staff, teachers, substitutes, administrators, and the like, should be in place everywhere, regardless of where you are. But now where are the voices in education? They seem to have dwindled down to a notable few that are in official positions, whether it be the minister, whether it be Mr. Langdon, at the NLTA, whether it be Don Coombs at the Federation of School Councils, but he makes an interesting point that no longer do we have this widespread voice system, we simply have boiled it back down to a few. Now, if you're a teacher or a student or a parent of and would like to bring education back onto the front burner where I think it absolutely belongs, then let's do exactly that, but that's a really interesting point. Also, Mr. Langdon seems to be screaming into the void when we know we do indeed, and we so we should, focus on issues regarding health care and shortages of professionals. But the same issue is in the school system. Teachers, uh, when you speak to them, we've uh, assigned them more roles than ever before. There is a shortage of teachers. There are a shortage of substitutes. And the issues are piling up. There has been, we are told, because of the consolidation or the amalgamation of the NLESD into the department, we can't possibly identify some savings that can be translated to further investment in the system and hopefully the better betterment for students and teachers alike. In this most recent budget, the injection of cash from the provincial budget was $12 million. And $12 million? Education doesn't necessarily get the focus that it could or should. You want to take it on? Let's go. 
all right, we talk about privacy and how to protect yourself as best we can. There's a story I read from the mainland, and sometimes we see this happen all the time. Something will become all the rage in B.C. It'll make its way across the prairies into central Canada, the Atlantic Canadians. Now we see it come to this uh, province. And this regarding vacancy issues and the housing crunch and the cost of getting in as a first-time buyer, the cost of rent. So with people clamoring just to get a look at a rental property, apparently this is what's going on in parts of Western Canada at this moment, and we hope it never makes its way here. So for some odd reason, landlords are now asking for some very personal information from potential renters, asking for passports and driver's licenses, social insurance numbers, social insurance numbers financial information. For what? What do they need any of that for? So you know that's going to potentially make its way into the head of a landlord here at some point and just say no. I know everyone who's, you know, maybe desperate to get a new rental unit and maybe just thinking, oh, look, I just got to see the apartment and I need an apartment. So yes, boy, here's my stuff. But in the hands of the wrong people, we know what that can mean. Credit cards being opened in your name, right? Your identity stolen. But just imagine, who are these people? You'd like to see my two-bedroom uh, two rental unit? Okay, let me see your passport. What are you talking about? Give me your banking information. Go away. How about your SIN number? How about no? So anyway, that's happening in Western Canada. I just thought we'd bring it up. Um, all right, let's talk about the public sector, particularly the federal government public sector. So we know, and some of the numbers have been updated. You know, as of uh, September last year, when we talk about job recovery, at that moment of time, some 86% of those jobs were created in the public sector. Now, there has been a lot of private sector jobs created since September, and so the numbers have flattened out a little bit. But here we go for the potential of the largest work stoppage from the, in the federal government in the last three decades. PSAC, apparently, and their uh, head man is Chris Aylward. He's a fellow from this province, as a matter of fact. They have voted what we are told is overwhelmingly, no percentage was offered by PSAC leadership yesterday, but uh, voted overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly to approve a strike mandate. There's some 120,000 members of PSAC. It's the largest public sector union. And we know uh, not so long ago, the workers, the employees at CRA also voted in the same fashion. So what a chaotic landscape that would provide. So we all know some of the issues. You know, Mr. Aylward says, well, they worked diligently throughout the pandemic, whether it be to monitor and to deliver some of those programs were put in place. You know the programs I'm referring to. So they're talking about money and keeping up with inflation and the like. I think we're all having that conversation. They're also talking about work conditions. So there was not so long ago they were told you have to come back to the office. No more working from home, even if it's just part-time back in the office, but you got to get back in there. So between money and work conditions, that seems to be where we are. We now know some of the numbers about what it costs to operate the government in this country are really, it's off the charts. But just imagine if 155,000 public sector employees find themselves on strike. What that means for government operations. What that means for us citizens to access some of the programs. And with CRA potentially going on strike, or employees of, you still got to file your taxes, and it's tax season, so... Yeah, just imagine if that actually happens. Holy smokes. All right, a couple of before we run out of time and get to the break and get to your calls. We were informed of the sad news a couple of days ago that one of the pillars and one of the real driving forces behind the theater community, Chris Brooks, has passed at the age of 79. I only knew him a little bit. I had met him on a couple of occasions. 
But when you hear from folks who are veterans of the industry, they speak to a man, to a woman, about the impact that Brooks had on theater and them. So we've heard from Andy Jones, and we're going to speak with Donna Butt from Rising Tide Theater out in Trinity at some point this morning. So he was well-renowned broadcaster and author, founder of the LSPU Hall and the Mummers Troupe, and on and on it goes. Famous for some of the radio documentaries that he produced, so obviously he was a giant in that world. And now passed at the age of 79. If you'd like to reflect on Chris Brooks, what he meant to you and some of the work that he has done, let's do that this morning. So he was awarded the Order of Canada. He has an honorary doctorate from Memorial University. Interestingly, he was studying engineering at Mon. And then he went on to pursue theater at Yale University and at the University of Michigan. So quite a legendary career and an interesting fellow was Mr. Brooks. Our deepest condolences to his family and his friends and the industry and those who looked up to or were mentored by Mr. Brooks. And we'll speak with Don about in a little bit about the life and times and the impact he had. Nice positive one before we get to the break. Where is it? Where is it? Oh, here we go. I want to say congratulations to one of our colleagues, Juanita Mercer, at the Telegram. I met Juanita not so long ago at a budget lock-in for the first time, and she does quality work. She's now one of the three finalists nationally for a very prestigious award called the Landsberg Award. So the Landsberg Award celebrates journalists raising awareness about gender equality and justice issues in Canada, seeking to inspire the feminist media coverage and voices of women in Canada. She's been recognized for her work regarding the lack of pay equity legislation, which is in the news again right now. So the reason I saved it, and to congratulate Juanita, and fingers crossed she wins the Landsberg, is because the pay equity legislation is very much part of the ongoing conversation in this province. So her work on that and the creation, uh, the work she did led to the creation of Bill Number 3, the Pay Equity and Pay Transparency Act. Whether or not that goes far enough, whether or not it's going to see the intended outcome, and there's always going to be discussions and debates about what the uh, wage gap really is and the, the reasons why it is what it is. But congratulations to Juanita, and hopefully you take away the prestigious Landsberg Award. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That only can happen when you join us live on the air. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number one. Say good morning to Jade Kearley with the Canadian Mental Health Initiative. Good morning, Jade. You're morning. on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Happy to do it. So you joined forces, I believe, with Grenfell. And what other organization for this look at homelessness on the West Coast? Sure. It was Community Mental Health Initiative and Grenfell Campus and uh, Newfoundland Labrador Housing in um, the Western region. What did we find? We found, well, we found what we were anticipating, but we have needed the data for a number of years to actually have it to give to the funders, um, is that we have a housing crisis here in Cornerbrook area in the Western region. Um, housing is not affordable. The, you know, the the stats on the the average cost of rent is lower than what we found in our study. Um, we know that the average cost of rent for a one-bedroom is $776, which for a lot of the folks that we see, uh, this is not affordable. This doesn't include heat and lights, um, you know, the other cost of living factors that, uh, you know, it's it's not affordable, essentially. And we also found that we do not have a large housing stock available. So we have a very low vacancy rate, which means that landlords, um, you know, can really be selective and, and naturally be selective in who they choose, but also can put the rent up a little bit higher because they, you know, there's no, no other options. So um, trying to find affordable housing is a challenge in our area. The 
the price that you quoted for a one-bedroom rental at seven? Did you say seven hundred and sixty dollars? Seven hundred and seventy-six dollars. Seven seventy-six. How does that compare? Did we look back and give it some sort of baseline that it might have been six hundred dollars pre-pandemic or something? Do we have yes. numbers to work with? Well, we didn't have we didn't have actual data. Um, all that we had was the information from CMHC, which stated it was around five hundred nine, five hundred and sixty. But we knew back then that there was uh, you know people were paying a lot more than the thirty percent to make it affordable. Uh, we were struggling at that time to find units that were five fifty, six hundred dollars. Now we're struggling to find one bedroom units that are seven fifty, eight hundred dollars. So before we get into the data and how it could or should be used regarding the numbers of people that you identified as being homeless, how do we use the data to deal with issues like rent? Because unless we put in rent control, which finds some loopholes where they just move off to a condo label, potentially we've seen that in other jurisdictions, how do we use the data and how should government and funders talk about rent when we see the numbers you brought forward? So that is something we've been advocating for quite some time around some rental control or rent caps. Um, and certainly there has been more discussion in the last number of months. And even uh, most recently, you're, you've you know, um, probably heard about the some of the rules coming down or looking at for Airbnbs. These are all things that we identified as being uh, challenges to finding suitable housing. So people are changing their apartments or units to an Airbnb rental. Uh, so that's displacing the folks that are there. Um, you know, it's we we've been we've been advocating for higher cost of um, income support rates because again the amount that is allocated is certainly not meeting the number or the cost of what the rent actually is. Let's look at some of the homelessness numbers. <laughs> Sometimes, and maybe. I, I don't know how everyone thinks about it, but a lot of the focus really does uh, focus in on the metro region. Because we've seen the population grow here, the availability of new units is not where it needs to be. Vacancy rate is very, very low. So what did we find out in the western region? So the same thing. We did a, um, a homeless count. We did a service-based count, and we identified in the short period that we did the count that 51 individuals were experiencing homelessness or at the risk of becoming becoming homeless. They were either living in shelter, couch surfing. Hidden homeless is our biggest uh, issue in the western region. Uh, and, and I would say in much of rural Newfoundland Labrador because, uh, you know, people are couch surfing or they're staying where they can um, or they're living in uh, uninhabitable places, uh, their cars, you know, things like that that are not suitable for living. But we did identify 51 individuals. Um, the uh, 50% were men. The average age was 39 years. 78% of them were single, um, and 38% of them received income support. So less than half on income support, but still, uh, so that means that, you know, even folks that, are, that have a, um, an income higher than what income support rates are, they're still struggling, and they're at risk of being homeless or are homeless. And it's really difficult to capture the number who are in a very precarious spot, you know, one paycheck away possibly from being without a place to live. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, then you add in the fact, and this is, I don't know how this factors in, it's probably not part of the data you've compiled, but we're seeing more and more the multi-generational home. You know, it was that way for a long time, then things changed and young people moved out much earlier in life. Now you can see Nan and Pop living with their son or their daughter, with their children and maybe some grandchildren in the house. It's a really fascinating thing. I don't know, once again, how you capture that, but that does factor into the conversation regarding affordability of rent and the opportunity to get into your own home. Exactly. It, it definitely does. Well, we know individuals that are paying high 
higher rent than than I'm paying for my own mortgage of a three bedroom house. You know, so when you think about someone in a one or two bedroom apartment, that their rent their rent is higher than someone's mortgage, but they're then unable to access or get a mortgage. It, but they're paying already more than what they would if they had the mortgage. It's like we we need to be able to help people get ahead and not hold them back or or keep them in place. Sometimes we think about housing, affordable or otherwise, as simply a safe place to lay your head. But every time we're talking about financial strife or struggles with monies, whatever the case may be, it has an impact far and wide, whether it be on your physical health, your mental health, your emotional health. How do we factor that in? How should we think and talk about that? Uh, we did ask questions around mental health uh, and stress when it came to uh, the individuals. We had uh, 104 tenants that were surveyed. And actually, you know, the rates of stress and mental health was around the 23% in terms of people identifying that their mental health or, or their stress levels were high, which was lower than what we had anticipated. Mm-hmm. But we know the folks that are um, there, they were tenants that were already living in housing. Uh, but folks that are homeless or at risk of being homeless, we know that those those numbers are much higher because they're in a crisis. They're not they're not knowing where they're going to be lay their head next week or next month or if they're going to have enough money to pay for rent and the the car put gas in the car or the insurance things like that. So we know that when um, you know when it comes to folks that we're seeing in shelter or that are calling us because they are struggling to keep up with the utilities, their stress level is much higher and it certainly does impact one's mental health and one's physical health. I mean, if you are financially stressed, it is definitely going to impact how you do the rest of your day. I'm not going to ask you this and put you on the spot, but I wonder just how many uh, empty or vacant or in need of repair Newfoundland Labrador housing units are out there because that is an important part, especially if we're talking about the numbers of people. I think you said 32% of the ones you identified as homeless are on in- income support. Mm-hmm. That's where the government uh, backstop or the uh, government support can absolutely manifest itself, but there's tons of them boarded up. I see the pictures. Yeah, we. I don't have that number. That would be annual housing, but yeah. you know, we do know that there are buildings here that are in major disrepair, and unfortunately, you know, the only thing that would probably be able to happen is to demolish them and start fresh. But that requires a lot of funding, and we've seen a lot of the funding go to the metro area, and we know that you know there is a, a housing crisis in St. John's. We know that people are homeless and on the streets there. We know that the shelters are full, but you know, a portion of those, over half of those individuals, are coming from rural Newfoundland, Labrador. So. You know, we need to see that the the funding go beyond uh, the St. John's Avalon area because there is housing and homelessness uh, issues in the the rural regions. Final thought to you, Jade, before we say goodbye this morning. Mm -hmm. Oh, my final thought? I'm sorry. (laughs) My final thought is I just, you know, we need to keep this conversation uh, going. Um, You know, we've been talking about it for a long time. Community groups across the province have been talking about it for a long time because we are the ones that are getting the calls. And we work really closely with our community partners and agencies like NL Housing. But we really need to put, we need to have more uh, vacancy units um, or vacant units, sorry, and, and social housing, public housing. Um, and we'd love to work with private developers to develop affordable housing projects as well. Appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for the good work. Thank you so much. Enjoy your day. You too, Jade. Bye-bye. That's Jade Carley. She's with the Community Mental Health Initiative and the collaboration and the numbers that they've identified out in the western region as homeless and the hidden homeless and some other various issues. Uh, Pepper a few of these in throughout the day and I guess the course of the week. Congratulations to the Mount Pearl Blaze, under 13 A's. They won the gold in a 5-4 overtime thriller yesterday against the host out in Bishop's Falls. So congratulations to the Blades and all hands playing in that particular tournament. Let's take a break. When we come back, Jennifer is in the queue to talk about clawbacks. Don't go away.
Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the program. Uh, before we get to the clawback conversation, let's go to line number three and say good morning to a teacher of technology. He's a digital blogger. That's Kevin Andrews. Good morning, Kevin. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Thanks for having me on today. I'm happy to have you on the program. I've been talking about it, although with limited understanding and knowledge, about some artificial intelligence, specifically ChatGPT. The numbers of folks that have moved to that artificial intelligence platform uh, from the onset just outweighs every other social media platform. For instance, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. In the first six months, more people flocked to ChatGPT. Let's start at the very beginning. What is it? So, you know, for anybody who's not aware of this AI tool, it's, it's usually what, what you would do is you type a regular string of text into a chat box, and the answers that come up with are sometimes jaw-droppingly, amazingly accurate. I mean, you think you're talking to a real person. Big companies like Microsoft are sort of pledging billions of dollars into this type of technology, promising that it will sort of change the world and change the way we learn. I'll start with some of the questions people have about it, because it can be a very fun or very effective and efficient tool. But some teachers, for instance, in post-secondary, now it's bleeding back into high schools and into junior high, is about whether or not it takes away the motivation to learn and the critical thinking required. If you can get an artificial intelligence tool to do the work for you, how should we think about that? Well, you know... um it's it's uh, i think a lot of those concerns are, are certainly legitimate and and, and you know um and so not being always reliable they say it's, it's sometimes not reliable too and it's sometimes not accurate so the answers you're getting are not really the right answers and so all of those are certainly legitimate criticisms and you know it is proven to be sort of a, a definite challenge to our educational system for sure like you mentioned you know you can ask chat gpt to sort of proofread your writing or point out sort of how to improve a paragraph and alternatively you know you can remove yourself from the equation altogether and get chat gpt to sort of write your answers for you so you know with that in mind cheating is sort of the immediate practical fear i think among educators uh, along with sort of getting a lot of misleading answers. And, and so, you know, yep, go ahead. And others now are out there creating uh, AI platforms to identify and to recognize when work has been generated by something like ChatGPT. So we're going to see that digital to and fro. Where does it har- harvest the information from? So it, uh, it, bas- it combs the Internet and finds all the information, what they call through big data, which is just uh, finding all the information through your tweets, uh, through social media and, and just online in general. Someone told me that it uh, is using a static, no longer being updated set of data. Is that accurate or is it drawing from the most recent updated data? Um, from my understanding, it's behind uh, a few weeks to a few months. So something that you post now, uh, if you ask ChatGPT, you probably won't find it for another week or two yet. Where are the red flags? Because, you know, if we're calming the Internet, it is fraught with inaccurate, misleading, disinformation, misinformation. There was one story I read this morning regarding a columnist who uh, worked at the Toronto Star put in some input that could reflect articles that he may have written in the past. The problem was it spit out a bunch of red flags that were inaccurate articles he had nothing to do with. How should people approach the veracity or the accuracy of what ChatGPT produces? 
Well, you know, as a teacher myself, it, it does beg the question, if ChatGPT can write and think for us and get all this information, whether it's misleading or not, you know, will students need to learn to write in the future as well, right? You know, at this point in time, you know, I can only answer that question sort of going forward with the idea that um, we, as an, as an educator, as a teacher, we really need to sort of embrace this new technology. I think the Pandora's box is now open and there's no real way of closing it. So, you know, therefore, as an educator, I think we need to develop new methods of teaching and learning. You know, sure, school can block chat GPT on school networks and school-owned devices, but, you know, students have phones and laptops and any number of other ways to sort of access it um, outside of the class. And so, you know, some people are saying, you know, AI chatbots could be programmed to sort of watermark their outputs in some way. Okay. So teachers, you know, wouldn't would sort of have an easier way of spotting AI-generated text. But this, too, is going to be very, very difficult. And, and so even, you know, if it were technically possible to block chat GPT, I mean, do teachers want to spend their nights and weekends keeping up with the latest AI detection software? You know, several educators I spoke to uh, with said that, you know, um, uh, even though they found ChatGPT assisted cheating annoying, policing it even sounded even worse, right? So, you know, I, I think instead of starting an endless game of whack-a-mole against an ever-expanding army of AI chatbots, uh, one possible solution, you know, at least for the rest of this academic school year, will be to cheat chat, or sort of treat ChatGPT as um, as a way that the teachers treat calculators, allowing it for some assignments but not for others, and assuming that, you know, unless students are being supervised in person with their devices stashed away, they're probably using it. <laughs> it could very well be a learning tool and a learning assist. You know, it, you talk about the teachers trying to police it. How many people have put in reports or essays or projects where they have a bunch of footnotes that maybe teachers don't go ahead and follow through with and check every footnote for its accuracy or whether or not it exists? There's, and some of these examples are popping up. So there's an Oxford professor named David Wilkinson. A student turned in a paper with a reference to one academic study, but they couldn't produce it because it didn't exist. So there was lots of issues there. And then they asked ChatGTB uh, directly about whether or not your citations are fake, this one particular fellow asked. And the response from ChatGPT was, as an AI language model, I do not generate fake citations deliberately. However, I do not have direct access to external sources or the internet, and I do not provide real-time information. It's always a good practice to cross-check and verify information for reputable and reliable sources independently, especially for critical or sensitive topics. So even the platform itself encourages the critical thought to ensure that you're on the right track. So it's all very interesting. It's fascinating, actually. It is. I mean, you know, like I said earlier, it is a Pandora's box that I think has been opened, uh, you know, un unless um, uh, governments uh, step in and, and uh, create some type of uh, uh, system to sort of block it or, or guidelines, then then we're sort of on our own here to, to move forward in a, in a more responsible way if we can. Well, what we do know about Pandora's box, one opened, impossible, or virtually impossible to close, so we have to embrace it and figure out how to best utilize it, best understand it, I guess, first, before we even try to figure out parameters and whether or not it can be used for this uh, subject or this one is not a, ap applicable, pardon me. Uh, final thoughts to you, Kevin, about what we should be thinking about with AI, because it's not necessarily in its infancy. For many, it is. But now that we've seen the advent of whether it be uh, the different products from the different big uh, software companies, it's going to come in droves. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, ultimately the barricade has fallen <laughs> yeah. and tools like ChatGPT aren't really going anywhere. They're only going to sort of improve and, and bearing some major regulatory intervention. You know, this particular form of machine intelligence is really a now a, a new fixture in our society, whether you like it or not. Some may welcome our new digital overlords, some maybe not. For sure. Absolutely. I think, you know, you really got to be um, uh, mindful of it and, and just be aware that it's, that it's going to be part of the, uh, the, the, the solution for sure. Appreciate your time this morning, Kevin. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks for having me. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Kevin Andrews, technology teacher, digital blogger. Terrific. That chat GPT, I'm going to have to play around with it a little bit to get even a better understanding because like many of those uh, technological issues, a little bit over my head sometimes. Let's go to line number two. Jennifer, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Okay, thank you. How about you? And not too bad. I have a couple of questions for you. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. The money was collected um, for the um, on the CERB. Right. Okay. People were on unemployment, and they were told that they would be going right onto the CERB from their unemployment. Now, they collected the money and now they they are collecting the money back off those working people that sooner or later they're going to be on the street they're going to be homeless it's had some real problematic implications for many people whether you're not you're told you're going directly onto the CERB as opposed to EI and then it's impacted mm-hmm. families with uh, some uh, benefits for children and what have you so yeah. people who are self-employed so it was certainly mm-hmm. not perfect a lot of folks unbeknownst uh-huh. to them find themselves in a spot where the tax man is going to start uh, clawing back some of that money and I get it it's a real mess out there for many people yes okay another question sure okay the people that uh, were no offense to these people, um, collecting assistance. Are they having to pay this money back, or is it just the working people? Provincially, they're clawing it back. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, if, if you willfully and knowingly applied for the CERB and you weren't eligible, there was a bunch of people, say, for instance, we'll pick just one group because that's part of the conversation that you began, yes. is yes. income assistance. And you didn't yes. have hours that were jeopardized because the job slowed down or you didn't get laid off. So they right. got the CERB and they, they weren't supposed to. The government provincially here is clawing that money's back. Now, it's at oh. a very slow pace and a very small percentage, okay. but they are ha- being forced to repay in the form of getting less on their check. Okay, less on their check. Yeah, that's and, my understanding. Uh, what about uh, GST or anything like that? Well, GST is always uh, measured based on annual income. So okay. this was a taxable income, so GST mm-hmm. eligibility doesn't change. You know, the formula hasn't changed. So if the CERB put you over the top and you're no longer eligible, then that's just the realities of life. If it didn't impact your annual income to the point where GST was no longer available to you, then it had nothing really to do necessarily with the CERB because okay. that measurement has always been the same. Yes, okay. Because now I know a few people and um, they are low-income low workers and now they're coming back and asking them to pay back the money. And like I said, they're going to be either starved to death or homeless. So the government put us in a, a big bind, right? They they have. They made a mistake, but now we're paying for it. 
some of it uh, was a mistake. And here's the problem that I, I've long had with all of these very quick programs without mm -hmm. the kind of oversight and monitoring that we would normally hope for and expect in a government program. The money went mm -hmm. out the door very quickly. And if very it wasn't cool. for some of these programs, a lot of people would have sunk. A lot of businesses yeah. would have sunk. But yeah. it wasn't all utilized the right way. Put it this way, just in one envelope. For mm -hmm. child benefit payments, for instance, Right. Because of the CERB and what it meant for income levels for some, the federal government in 2022 spent $1.45 billion less in child benefit payments as a direct result of the CERB. So now that the exactly. CERB was over, the, yeah. fa the families, based on the income in 21, still didn't qualify for those child yeah. benefit payments. So it had wide-reaching implications. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. And um, I know you might not like this. Maybe. But, uh, maybe, okay, is Biden and Trudeau trying to collapse our two countries? What do you mean by that? Well, everything has gone, everything has gone to the way that, like, Biden has, um, the oil situation, that's, our gas has gone crazy, our food's gone crazy. Like, we can't get nothing to be transported across here. It's like life is just as bad in the United States as it is in Canada. Well, because they want to make this a communist country. Well, I don't and see much they, communism on the go. It, it's coming. It's coming. Based on what? Um, the situation. Uh, like, for instance, gas. The gas is like 180 180 now the the grocery stores are crazy you can't afford to buy anything extra you can't but i don't know how that lines up with any thought of here comes communism i uh, mean you know because price of gas for instance and the price of food the government's not even really directly involved in that other than taxation and they've actually decreased the tax in this province on uh, on gasoline for instance so i don't know how any of that equates with anything yeah. b whether it be communism or marxism or leninism or socialism yeah. because those those words have real distinct historical context and very very specific meanings. We're right. a social democracy. We long have been. And the yeah. price of gas, I don't know how much influence anybody has on that beyond the oil companies, the price of oil, the global volatile market that it is, and then the refineries yeah. and a bunch of interruptions. And, yeah. you know, we're, we're kind of dealing with some cartel stuff here, you know, oh, like OPEC yeah. or whatnot. But, I, 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 you know, with the United States, probably the most advanced well, that's not the right way. The uh, most no, capitalistic not. country on the they face were. of the earth. <laughs> oh, it, it hasn't changed. The job numbers are strong in the United States. Job numbers are pretty interestingly strong here. And, you know, communism has a real distinct uh, flair to it that I don't think either of these two blokes uh, are exactly that. But people can yeah. dislike their politics. People can dislike their policies. Absolutely. That's just part of the political conversation. Yes. But things aren't yeah. really changing that much. The pandemic has made us all feel like things have changed very, very quickly. And for many people that's true it's absolutely people true are walk, people are walking around like zombies don't know where they're going what what they're doing next that's the world has gone upside down put it that way yeah, for some, it's hard to argue with but that point. For many, everywhere. you know, we're trying to get yeah. back on track and get back to what we once enjoyed and things we did. Those things are out there and available. I think people's mindset yeah. has probably changed more, more than things have changed. Yeah. So anyway, I do appreciate your time this morning, Jennifer. Hope you're doing okay. Okay, thank you very much. Take good care.
Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, let's see here. Oh, very quickly, I said I'd pepper a few of these in there throughout the program. Let's bring this one up here quickly. Man, my computer's some slow. Uh, I had a congratulations for the... Avalon Celtics U13C, they won the provincial championships over uh, CBR. Congrats to the crowd. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking about shrimp. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number four, speaking more to the executive director at CNL. That's Ryan Cleary. Ryan, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. Do you any listeners? Thanks, as always, for taking the calls. Pleasure. What's on your mind this morning? A couple of things, Patty, about the wild fisheries, uh, northern shrimp and snow crab. Uh, first, northern shrimp. Um, I heard fisherman Terry Ryan from uh, Let's See calling in yesterday about. Uh, about the shrimp fishery, about the fact that it's not open yet in Area 6. There's no opening date. For the information of your listeners, shrimp fishing Area 6 is the area mostly fished by the inshore fleet. It's off southern Labrador. It's off uh, northeastern Newfoundland. So Terry Ryan and the other fishermen are waiting for the opening date for, for fishing conditions to be released, but there's no word from DFO. And as he, as he said yesterday, we can't even get an acknowledgement from DFO of the request for a shrimp opening date. A couple of things I'd like to point out, Patty. Number one, the shrimp fishery in Area 6 generally opens on April the 1st. DFO acknowledges that straight up in their management plan, and we're almost two weeks past that date. Second, uh, the highest, and Terry mentioned this as well, the highest quality shrimp, which offers the best yields, is landed in the spring. Now, that was pointed out last year, for example, in the price-setting panel when they set the price for, for shrimp. So it's now April the 13th. We're 24 days since the first day of spring. There's still no word from DFO on an opening date or an indication of when to expect one. So, so Patty, what it comes down to is the delay impacts the fleet's ability to land the highest quality shrimp. And, of course, from that, the profit, prof, profitability of their enterprises. So the message is that DFO has got to get on the ball. Yeah, it's, if I understand it, like, there's no real difference between now and three weeks down the line for catch rates. The problem that was articulated by Terry in particular is that once the boys, once the harvesters go at the crab, and eventually you have to believe someone's going to go out there at the crab, that makes it more tricky to go for shrimp given the prevalence of crab gear in the water. So I'm not sure what the right thing is here, but what I'm also failing to understand in full is that isn't this a very similar circumstance year over year where there's overlap between shrimp and crab? It's the same condition every single year where shrimp fishermen are waiting until the last minute to find out when the shrimp fishery is open. Now, shrimp fishermen, like all fishermen, are small business owners. That's no way to run a small business, finding out the last minute when, when it opens. Again, this is a complaint that's year after year after year, but DFO has got to get on the ball. These conditions and opening dates have to be set long before the fishery opens so that fishermen, small business owners that they are, have a chance to gear up and get ready. They've got to get on the ball. The second thing I want to—I know you got limited time, Patty. But the second okay, thing I want to touch on is, is crab. Now, everybody is obviously all eyes, all focus around snow crab, and the, and the fact that um, we got a two twenty a pound price set this year, which is sixty four percent less than last year. And of course, you got you know obviously the fleet tie up, the worst of the crab fishery. Patty, what I'd like to point out, the highlight to your listeners, is that in its written decision, when the panel set that price at at two two twenty a pound. But I read the written decision when they pointed out to 220. They said straight up that that 220 um, offered by the Association of Seafood Producers over the 310 offered by the FFAW, but that 220 was not the correct price. The panel said it straight up. The panel said that the the correct price was somewhere between the 220 and the 310. So, Patty, my message is from the panel: if the if the correct price 
is not 220 that means obviously it's the wrong price this whole panel system of fish pricing that was reviewed last year the provincial government ordered a review at the end of the review they decided not to change the system just to tweak it with a second reconsideration the FFAW for example fully agreed with the status quo with a bit of tweaking but leaving the system at is as it is now everybody has a problem with it but they didn't last year and my message from that is the fact that we need a real review of the pricing system because even when that review was done last year patty i think i mentioned it just before the provincial government did not hold any public meetings with fishermen fishermen weren't even consulted and in fact there were three reviews last year where fishermen were, were consulted that's ridiculous it's not good enough but i guess my broader message is we need yet another review of the pricing system because that review last year did not do it we're stuck with the same system the same system that doesn't work what do people suggest would be a replacement system because i think the state is blatantly obvious the processors would like to pay as little as possible because they're in it for a profit. The harvesters would like to get as much as possible before the profitability over their enterprise. So what do we actually do here? The panel, I look, I don't think the panel works. I don't think it obviously doesn't work when the panel admits the price that they selected was the wrong price. So what are people suggesting as a replacement? Petty, I think you suggested it yesterday, and I think you've been talking around it for a little while. Well, I mean, I auctions at the wharf. Yeah, I mean, listen, if you were to ask me what would give complete transparency, what would result in a complete free and open market and the best possible price for your fish, it would be an electronic auction system open not just to local buyers who got that $100 million inventory still wrapped around their neck from last year, or so they say. We need an electronic auction system open to outside buyers so people, so fishermen, so our inshore fleet can get the best possible price for their fish. Now, that's what we should shoot for. Anything less than that, including the panel system, amounts to manipulation. It's manipulating the market. It does not work. No argument here. Uh, just lastly, and I will I'll wrap this up here and get to the news, is, you know, I'm not asking you to speak for or on behalf of Greg Pretty or the FFAW or anyone, but he, he made some of these references that the price did not include the cost of operations. So, I don't know how that, that actually happens here, and I don't even know if that should be part of the consideration because the price for something is based on what the market is willing to pay for something, not how much it costs to capture it or to produce it or to manufacture it because that ends up, you know, that includes more of the end price for the consumer than it does what it costs to go harvest it. So is that even part of the calculation? Because I don't really, I don't, can't necessarily understand that part. I don't know, Petty. I'm not in on the negotiations. I, uh, you know, that's between the F FFAW and the, uh and the ASP, ultimately, the market will pay what the market can bear to, to pay. There's no doubt that the market in the U.S. because of inflation is down. There's no doubt that the market in Asia, in Japan, and South Korea is down because it's been flooded by cheap Russian, uh, Russian snow crab. There's no doubt about any of that. But there are also bright spots, and that was pointed out by the panel as well, bright, bright spots on the horizon in terms of the price. So, I mean, please, God, it, it will go up. But, I mean, the market will pay what the market will pay. But we don't know what the market will pay because you're stuck stuck with with uh, with local buyers. It's, I mean, imagine if you tried to do that with oil, uh, with the oil off our shores. They don't do that with oil. They only uh, mandate the fact that it needs to, uh, in terms of price, they only mandate for for fish. I don't understand what the difference is. A free and open market should be a free and open market. But the bottom line, Patty, is it's not. No, and I mean I get the point and the analogy there. Oil is a 
kind of a different volatile globally trade commodity with some cartel influence if we're you know talk okay. about you know some of the manipulation of the market that's so easily done by these companies and these countries you know especially when we're talking about OPEC and what they do uh, anyway last thoughts for you Ron because I have to get to the news well uh, please God the price goes up and DFO open the pr- please God the price of uh, snow crag goes up goes up quick and I'm hoping that it will the other thing is DFO has got to get op- on the ball and open that northern shrimp fishery in Area 6. Thanks for your time, Pat. Take, your, take care, Ryan. Appreciate the time. Okay. All the best. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break for the newscast. When we come back, time for you. The topic, up to you. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Janice. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Um, I just want to bring up a topic that was uh, pretty popular last month, and I want to throw uh, a bouquet to uh, Prince of Wales Collegiate, uh, the principals and teachers there, how they drew attention to um, something that was negative and made it. I don't know if you'd call it positive, but, you know, they... They made it better for for the victim. And I think maybe this could be uh, something that could be uh, used all the time when there's a bullying situation. Uh, probably uh, the bullies wouldn't like it as much when their names and, and, and their identity is brought forward for everybody to to see that what they've done is wrong. Of course, uh, but we, we also have a privacy matter when we talk about youth. You know, the one person that we do know is the age of 18, and his name was put forward. But what what actually happened in the school that you're referring to specifically? Now, I'm not talking about the violence, but what in the aftermath. What are you saying is a positive outcome? You know, when they when the, the teachers and, and the principal, uh, they were on TV, and they um, they had a rally of some kind. And, uh, you know, they they made it uh, into a positive thing. They they didn't glorify the victim, uh, but it kind of made it brought attention uh, to the, the bullies and, and what they did to this, this young fella. And, uh, you know, I, I thought it was I thought it was a good thing that they did that. And uh, so I'd like to throw a bouquet out to them for for that. Fair enough. I mean, we've got to grapple with how we deal with issues that happen on school grounds. Inside the school, there's a lot more controls that can be put in place, but playgrounds and parking lots and those types of things. You know, I think there was commissioners outside of PwC after this act of violence. You know, it's not even bullying. This is straight-up criminal acts and violence. And there's been very serious charges laid all the way up to attempted murder. So that was a scary story. And we've just got to prepare schools across the province to understand what's going on and to put whatever protections in place outside of the walls of the school so that we can not maybe eliminate but reduce the numbers of assaults and attacks that we're hearing and seeing. Yeah, well, you know... um, uh, it's like it's going to get to the point where someone's going to get killed one of these days, and you know oh they. Don't but I I agree, I agree with you wholeheartedly. There needs to be something done outside the parameters of the school, you know, the the playgrounds and whatever. Um, uh, now that I I just thought of another subject as I was waiting here. Um, you know the the guy that was on about the fishery. Uh, to me. Uh, the government doesn't put enough emphasis on the needs of our people. And um, you you can phone and try to make a, a, a reservation at the Holiday Inn, and you can't do that because 
And I got nothing against the Ukraine. It's just that I think charity begins at home, and the government should be looking after our people and providing what our fishermen need because that was the backbone of our province. And they should be able to give them what they need before they provide um, housing and um you know, all these accommodations for, for the Ukraines. I'm not saying that they don't deserve anything. I'm just saying that our people should come first. What kind of supports and, should the government be given to the fishery? Like, what what does that mean? Well, they should give the, the fishermen know what they want. They know what's good, and they know what, what's needed for the survival of the fishery in the province. And so give them what they want. They're the people who's doing it. When did Seamus Reagan uh, ever fish? Where, you know, what, what did he know about fishermen and what they have to go through? And, you know, I mean, he's, he's at his desk. He should be fighting. He should be saying, listen, get this done for the people. They know what they want. They just want more money when it comes, if we're talking of about crab, for instance. But is it government's place to put money into something that really relies on what the market's willing to pay, right? So if the market has gone by the wayside, whether it be in Japan, whether it be in the United States, and that seems to be the case, so... What should government do? Just put more money on top of the price that was set by the panel? They should do whatever it, it needs to be uh, done to help these fishermen. Whatever needs to be done because money is wasted. Left, right, and center when it comes to um, the income support system. There's, there should be someone in place just to uh, dig out all the, the fraudulent people that are receiving uh, income support that shouldn't be receiving it. There should be something in place that, like this whole income support thing, should be revamped. Uh, like money is wasted in those cases. So, I think that whatever whatever the fish the people that are are the fishermen themselves know what they want and what they need. And and I think that they would do it in such a way that you're not going to bankrupt uh, the the government or the the people. Uh, but um, but they know and and I mean do what if they got hey if they got a supplement if the government got a supplement for the fishery why not because they do it for everybody else. I appreciate your time this morning, Janice. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. Uh, let's keep going. Let's go to line number eight. Say good morning to the NDP member for St. John's Center. He's the leader of the NDP, Newfoundland and Labrador's Jim Din. Jim, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for having me. Happy to do it. I just want to call in. We we will be as a, a provincial party. We'll be uh, calling, starting a campaign to call upon government to uh, increase or to improve the provincial uh, dental health plan to cover seniors until, uh, as a stopgap measure, until the federal uh, initiative kicks in at the end of the year. And uh, I think uh, that's uh, that would be. Uh, we believe that would be a, a good investment in our seniors. Uh, and also as a way uh, to, to address some of the very serious uh, dental health issues that uh, that they are calling our office about. I will tell you that since the federal uh, program or the initiative was announced, uh, we have not just uh, gotten calls not just from my district uh, or uh, Leela's district, uh, Leela Evans's district, or Jordan Brown's district, but we've got them from across the province wondering when. They, when uh, seniors are wondering when they can uh, when they can uh, avail of the plan and are they eligible? So I think it, it speaks to something we've seen uh, in my district alone. Just a number of people who are uh, seniors who are who are suffering unnecessarily with dental health issues that that should have been treated and that 
usually end up having to be uh, progress to something much more serious, require, requiring hospitalization um, and costing, I guess, costing the system more, but also puts seniors in a p position of pain, uh, embarrassment in many cases, and uh, social isolation. So what is, uh, specifically are you promoting here? So, and it's a good question, <clears throat> because... Our concern is that, uh, you know, first of all, there are seniors who are wa uh, who have been waiting. Uh, well, the dental program for seniors was cancelled in 2016, I think, with the uh, with the Liberal budget at that time. And we've had, uh, I know, the seniors. They've been going sometimes months, years without without the adequate dental care. But we're looking at the budget line uh, for the dental services last year. So it was underspent by 2.5 million. Now they had the same amount budgeted this year. So Assuming for the minute that we're going to start, uh, we're going to see probably probably similar sa similar savings because you don't adult dental day daycare doesn't apply to uh, doesn't apply to seniors. It applies to at all only those uh, people who are on in receipt of income support. So what we're saying, if as a start, if we made that savings, put that savings uh, toward uh, into the uh, that 2.5 million dollars. On top, uh, increase the uh, increase this year's budget by that, and divert some of that money towards addressing the the dental needs of our seniors, who, the ones who have no coverage. That's the starting place, at least until so that uh, by the, uh, that there's a, a way to address some of the more serious issues before the uh, uh, rather rather than have seniors wait until the end of the year. So that's a that's a that's a simple first step that we would argue, um, but I think it would have a bigger payoff, certainly in the lives of these seniors, and also in terms of the seniors then who have to uh, have to access uh, acute care, uh, emergency uh, room uh, services, you name it. Oh, okay, so my understanding is that the seniors' federal dental coverage would be kicked in by the early fall. That's not the case. It would be, but still, we're now. We, we, it would be the early fall. But two things we're concerned with here: you're going to have a rush and uh, and uh, a rush uh, towards. Uh, I always say we're going to have an onslaught of people, uh, seniors looking for this dental care. So what we're suggesting here is that the province, the province, no, uh, will uh, uh, can step in here, and start treating some of the more serious issues right now. If they didn't spend, if they didn't spend the entire amount budgeted for the adult dental care pro program, we're asking now to invest those savings, uh, top it up uh, a bit, and start addressing some of the acute, uh, the, the serious dental issues that that have come to our office. Uh, we've uh, and and that's that's the key thing to, uh, from my point of view. So it sounds like we're only looking at maybe about a four or five uh, months or so. Uh, but I would suggest that that would be uh, that would mean a significant uh, would have a, a significant savings, but mean an extra, uh, an awful lot to the seniors who are who we've been trying. I can think of four seniors we've been trying to help since uh, for the last few months, and uh, some of them have ended up in uh, in some serious. Uh, uh, physical health with some physical health issues as a result of their uh, the dental lack of dental care. I don't want to ask this as a stupid yeah. question but you know it's hard to know who the middle class is. It's hard to even sometimes know who a senior is. I can get a discount at shoppers at 55. Yeah. Then there's a 10% bump in OAS for 75 plus. So who's a senior? 
So anyone right now, the program for anyone over 65 who, uh, let's say, moves out of a, who's no longer on um, income support. So a lot of the seniors we have, they they don't have their own dental health uh, their dental health plan. They can't afford it. Uh, and that, those are the ones we tend to be who are calling my office. The ones who are over 65. And 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 in some cases we've got also families with that uh, 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 they they don't they don't have an insurance program. They're not on income support. They may not be able to access to provincial drug plan and 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 at that point they still have significant uh, they still have significant uh, dental problems that they're trying to deal with but i i will tell you patty that the uh, i i can think of one uh, one of our constituents she ended up um in in the uh, in the waterford at, and she quite uh, blunt about this and part of it was because of the uh, the uh, the infection uh through all of her um, of her medication for diabetes, and uh, she was diagnosed at that time as sort of a, going through some sort of a mental ep- uh, episode. It wasn't the case; it was, it was entirely tied to the uh, to the uh, to the dental the abscess that had formed as a result of the infection. So, to me, that was an unnecessary um, that was an unnecessary hospitalization. The other part for us is. We find uh, to access the uh, the for the emergency dental the, the surgical aspect requires hospitalization. They need a, a note from a doctor. They need a, a diagnosis from a doctor that they're uh, let's say they're such as diabetes is out of control uh, from a dental uh, from a dentist to say that this is required and. Still, we've had uh, people here, seniors, who've had their uh, the coverage denied, and they're left for, then for months uh, and maybe uh, and more up to a year, uh, suffering with the pain, and they cannot get the teeth extracted. They cannot have the necessary uh, uh, dental uh, dental care to. Uh, to, to more or less be prevented from becoming serious. And for some of these seniors, and they've made it clear, I don't want to go out, I don't want people to see my teeth, or if some of them want to go out um, even to look for uh, to work, at some, they're not going to do that because they feel socially isolated. They are embarrassed. There's, there's that other aspect. Yeah, even things like extractions, they're not even covered in the low-income access program no. or the adult dental program, my understanding. There are some potential coverages based on medical needs inside the surgical yeah. program. So in real terms... How does this work if you had your druthers? Is it, is it simply expand the adult dental program for 65 plus? You know, because even inside of that plan, if I'm not mistaken, even basic services yep. are on a three-year cycle, dentures on an eight-year cycle. So yep. realistically, what are you suggesting happen? Because so is it right just expand the, the adult dental program? Right now, let's let's do what we can to clear up the, any backlog right now and, and start giving, uh, and, and for, uh, we would argue, a, a modest increase. Uh, it would, it would, and I think that would have huge savings in the, in the medical system and for in the lives of these people. That's the first thing. But I, you, you raise a very good point because I do believe that if you're, like cleanings and, and just regular checkups, uh, they they save money. I'd rather have my I, 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 uh, my teeth cleaned like my yearly checkup and avoid having in three years' time massive fillings to go through or extractions and so on and so forth. So I think in many ways, uh, if you want to look at, uh, I, I, I think we can also improve the adult dental care program as well. 
because I do believe, and I know you and I have had this conversation here, in the long term, it's going to make for better health uh, and, and better health outcomes. And it's, I, I would like to believe that it means that you're going to have fewer people uh, relying on uh, going to the emergency room or ending up in acute care or with others or complications. If you've got things as such uh, uh, chronic illnesses such as diabetes, uh, that you know this is going to make, make for better overall health. But for a lot of seniors, I will tell you that until we have the uh, the uh, the, the federal plan in place and rolling out, I think we can, as a gesture here as a province, as this provincial government, you know what, we're going to start doing our bit right now to make sure that the senior, that seniors who need it don't have to wait until then. We're going to start the process of addressing some of those issues right now. I can tell you from the phone calls that come into our office since the announcement that Jagmeet made that uh, uh, made that announcement, it's uh, they're calling, wondering when. The key thing is, when can I avail of this and am I eligible? So there's a need out there that hasn't been addressed, and I think our province can step up and, and, uh, and, and address the needs of our seniors in this province for sure. And maybe, just maybe, the federal government could make it allowable across the provinces and territories oh. that the work inside their plan can begin now and billing can take place in the fall. Anyway. I would support that for sure. Appreciate the time, Jim. Thank you. Take okay. care. Bye-bye. It's Jim Din, NDP member, St. John Centre, leader of the party. Let's take a break. When we come back, Glenda wants to give us a heads-up on a phone scam she encountered, and then we're going to talk moose and wrestling, whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Glenda, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Um, I got an email from what looked like my bank. It had my bank logo, and it looked really legit. Gentlemen, mm-hmm. and then a few minutes after that, I got a phone call telling me that someone tried to take money out of my account, and they needed to verify it wasn't me. And they even knew the last four digits of my uh, my bank card. And I'm like, uh, I'm not giving you any information until I find out if you know if it's real or not. So I hung up on them, and I called the bank right away. And no, they didn't send any email and they didn't call. And so, I mean, it looks so real. I'm afraid some poor people is going to fall for it and get robbed, <laughs> right? Inevitably, someone will because, you know, we just naturally get nervous when we get an email like that or a phone call like that. But, you know, that's generally not how uh, the banks or CRA or anyone else operates. So you no. did the exact right thing. And what I encourage people to do is, if you see something that you have questions about, your questions are probably right on point. So as opposed to dealing with the email, call your branch. You know how to reach yes. them, and they'll be able to confirm yes. whether or not you need to respond to anything via email or phone call or, any, or anything else. Exactly. If you get a call what sounds like your bank or email, call your branch because it's a good chance it's fraud. Yeah, and you know... Interestingly, on that front, if you get a call and they ask you for a bunch of personal information, if it's really the bank or it's really CRA, they have your information. They don't need you to give it to them. They gave me the last four digits and you wanted me to confirm the rest. I'm like, "Uh, no. (laughs) Yeah, because they know the rest. They're the bank. Exactly. Yeah, and while we're talking scam... Please, now that it's tax season, people will be dealing with their accountants or dealing with TurboTax or whatever. If you get a call that is supposedly coming from CRA saying, if you don't pay, you're going to jail. The police are coming to arrest you. Oh, if you I don't do, call like that it's a scam. Years, it's straight up scam. I, I told them to send a nice looking young officer. I was <laughs> sitting there with a bikini on, and they hung up. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> the officer never came. <laughs> no, because the officer is not a real thing. Minus that, this just so it's disheartening though. Is you know how many people have fallen for some of these scams? The grandparent scam, for instance, that's a real heartbreaker. Uh, yeah. So we got to keep talking about it just so folks are you know aware that that is happening, and we don't want you to be the next victim. Yes, exactly. I appreciate this, Glenda. Good on you. Okay, Patty, no problem. Take good care. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. What do you want me to do here, David? Take uh, five? Okay, let's go. Line number five, Eugene, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you to you and David and VOCM for giving me the opportunity to get on, and good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, Good morning, Patty. Uh, I'm calling in, like, I listened to the gentleman two days ago chatting with you about the reduction of moose licensing, the turnover, and the gamble area for the residential people. Now, uh, he mentioned me, and uh, and nothing, you know, you didn't say anything bad, and and I appreciate him thinking about me (laughs) and mentioning about me. Because when SOPAC got started, when we started SOPAC in 2009, the big concern with us was, because up until that time, that year, there was four people killed. There was hundreds of moose vehicle accidents. And like I said before, I know I sound like a broken record. I've had eight family members in moose accidents, uh, including a cousin that's been disabled uh, in long term now, uh, since he was 32 and he's in his 60s now. And it's, it's, it strikes home. And I have seen, I visit a lot of families that have lost loved ones. I've attended a lot of funerals. And it's very important. And the two reasons why we started SOPEC, Patty, was to reduce the number of moose vehicle accidents and to increase the number of moose licensing. At the time, there was approximately, well, according to wildlife, there was 140,000 in the province. So we didn't think there was any need to add that many moose in the province, almost one per four people. So uh, now it's down to about, so then back 10, 12 years ago, they start increasing the licensing, uh, as you probably know. And then Last few years, they've been decreasing them. And what a kick in the teeth for these residential people. They're reducing the residential people and not not decreasing the residential people and not decreasing the non-residential people. So that's a kick in the teeth. And I tell you, it's a kick in the teeth for us too, uh, SOPEC, and, and I'm still a member of SOPEC, of course, because uh, we're not getting any fencing. They're decreasing the number of moose licensing. We've had three people killed last year. Yeah, they're decreasing the number of licenses because the animals aren't there. So, because the animals are not there, so do we still need a hundred? Well, the hundred and ten thousand moose in the province that the wildlife is saying, uh, you know, uh, we still had fifteen accidents in Terranova National Park, Park last year, where they're reducing it by fifty licensing. So something is not working right. But what's happening, Patty? What's happening? Yes, I know you might say, and you've said it before, if you got one moose, you could have an accident. But listen, it's very important to for traveling public to be protected. The government are not protecting them with fencing like they were back then. They start fencing. They said they're going to continue in areas that was hot spots. They didn't. They're, they've been reducing the licensing. We had three people killed last year, hundreds of moose vehicle accidents. For anyone that has been affected by a moose accident knows what I'm saying. It's very important not to decrease licensing to the point that you're out there uh, uh, getting killed, but to increase them and or at least keep them as they are so that we can at least somehow travel the highway without getting injured or killed. Right, Patty? 
Well, nobody promotes uh, most vehicle collisions. I mean, let's get that out of the way. Uh, the number of animals, I have no earthly idea. In fact, the government has changed in the way they try to approach a moose head count, I'll, I'll call it. So there's some 27,500 licenses out there this year. When you right. talk about the ecosystem and the balancing act required, all of that has to be brought into consideration. And, you know, you and I have had discussions countless times about moose and the presence of moose on the road. And, I mean, I still think it's a variety of things. It's the time of day, the rate of speed, the alders cut back from the shoulder. I think it's all the various factors that play into the possibility for a very serious moose vehicle collision. And if, you know, if people are looking at what the numbers of animals might be and what the appropriate number of licenses are. I mean, I think the success rates tell some of the story, not the entirety of the story. And the biggest issue that that caller that you're referring to had was the fact that the out-of-province licenses and or outfitters licenses were not decreased, but all the only de decrease found in the Gambo zone or the moose management area where he hunts was for the local license. So I think that was the crux of his conversation. Yes, it was. I heard the conversation, and a good point. I signed the, the petition again, and I signed a hundred times if I could. Yeah, it, it doesn't make sense. What's happening? The government is bending to the other province people and not bending to the residential people, and it's not good enough. They're not protecting us with moose fencing. We got to fight like uh, like tooth now to get a bit of brush cut. Uh, and the list goes on. They didn't do the, 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 the grubbing and the hydro seeding like they planned to do. Uh, and the trees are still growing up after four or five years. They're up, back up uh, the, the, the alders or whatever. So, no, the government is not taken serious. And besides that, the head that you people add on the radio, adds on the radio, uh, the 800 number, and, and to warn people about the moose on the highway. And last year, come on, yeah, they put it on October. What a kick in the teeth for the traveling public when the, when the worst season for moose accidents is May to October. I mean, the government don't take this serious, and for anyone that have had a family member injured or killed, they know as damn well is right what I'm talking about. And I tell you, the government should wake up, and yes, if there's a hot spot where there's people getting killed like out South Brook last year, they should do some fencing. But they wouldn't do it. I mean, in New Brunswick, with, with, with 35,000-plus moose, they got over 500 climbers done. In Newfoundland, with 110,000, they got 16 climbers done. Do you think the government is taking us serious? Well, I... It's not really for me to answer. I mean, I don't work for the government. Uh, but I understand I your concern, and I appreciate your time. Would you like to say anything else, uh, Eugene, before I take a break? Patty, thank you for the time. I know I sounds like a broken record, but someone beneath a moose vehicle accident and been around this so much as I have, know the government's not taken it serious, and people are getting injured and killed, and it shouldn't be happening. Thank uh, you, Patty. Thanks for the call, Eugene. Take care. Have, have a good one, brother. You too. Bye-bye. All right, appreciate the patience of those in the queue. Gabriel, you're up next. Talking about what? Just you wait. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Oh, welcome back. Let's go to line number seven. Gabriel, you're on the air. Line number seven. Yep. Gabriel, you're on the air. Hello. Hello there. Uh, good morning. How are you? Excellent today. Thank you. How about you? I'm doing wonderful. Um, I uh interesting little topic to discuss and uh, for, uh based around Newfoundland wrestling. Okay, what are we talking about? Uh, now, as far as Newfoundland goes, there's probably seven or eight different dates across the next few months, but this morning I'd like to center in on this weekend, tomorrow night and Saturday night at the Mary Brown Center in St. John's. Uh, for the show, uh, uh, 
Atlantic Championship Wrestling is going to be there. Uh, they're going to be having a couple of matches during the pregame and halftime of the Disneyland Roses Fayetteville Stingers game. Gabriel, we and, have a terrible uh, connection. Is there any possibility that you can catch a landline and give us a call back? Because I can't really hear you. Uh, yeah, sure, I could try. Yeah, please do that, because I'd like to hear what you have to say, but it's breaking up pretty badly. Not a problem. Okay. Just uh, bear with me. I should be back soon. Okay, there we go. We'll uh, drop that, and we'll get Gabriel back on landline for a bit more. Reliability, let's go to three. Roz, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Uh, I'm calling about my experience of really not having a doctor. I ended up getting, my pain was so severe, I had to call my daughter to come over with me. And when she came over, she called and explained, she called the 811 number and explained everything to them. And that I, they couldn't put me in a car because I was in so much pain. So they sent in an ambulance to assess me. So they don't... They assessed me. My blood pressure was up that high. They took me to the hospital, into the hospital, to be looked at in there. <clears throat> and I'm, excuse me, Patty, but um, I'm a bit nervous. And anyway, <laughs> my experience was wasn't very good. Into the hospital either. I had this. I, they gave me something for pain. The ambulance drivers did, and. Uh, when I got in the hospital, I was sitting in a chair all night before I could see a doctor. And then it was a lady there in the hallway, and she had a number seven written it, no buzzer, no nothing. And she was sitting in a stroke chair all night. And I, I was kind of upset just even watching her. I asked even the ambulance drivers to put her in the room so I could talk to, talk to her. But they weren't allowed to do that, you know, unless you went through the experience. You don't know what the hell you're going through. Well, and then I get an ambulance bill for $115. So now I paid that anyway, Petty, and I'm not worried about money as such. I'm only a I'm only making 30000 a year, and i got to pay for everything myself anyway, so I don't give a hell. So anyway, I told the ambulance driver that if I had a heart attack, do not revive me. I don't want to be revived. I don't want to come back to a world like this. That's how upset I am over this. So, uh, just so I can understand that you're uh, emotional about this, so... What exactly caused this to be as painful as it was? Was how you were treated or the other lady was treated? or No, uh, the, the whole thing, Patty, the whole experience just going to the hospital. Well, when generally... If I had to have a doctor to ease <laughs> off my pain, I wouldn't have seen all this emotional stuff. And I'm the type of person that when I see someone suffering, it, I, I, I take it to hurt. I take it to hurt. You know, as an injured worker, I found that out. And and the part is, like I said, 
the ambulance drivers were perfect. I, I got to say they couldn't do enough for us. But that poor old lady was in that structure, no buzzard or nothing. She took her teeth and threw them across the floor. So I had I buzzed them to pick up her teeth. She she was pulling her clothes off, and I buzzed them. I said something wrong with her. You know, even though I was, like I said, I was relieved from pain by then because they were giving me shots for the pain that I was bearing. But I'm just one of these people that just can't let things go. And I figured I had to call in here today to tell my experience. Now, like I said, some people go in and they get treated perfect. I hear it on your show all the time. But to me... The ambulance drivers done the best they could for me. And that's a good thing. You know, generally, going to the hospital, you're going to encounter people in some pretty dire straits, and it can be absolutely overwhelming. And I, I had to go to a medical appointment at the Health Sciences last Thursday, and you can see it in the face of some, not only the worry, but the pain that goes with it is very real. The hospital can be... Uh, Quite an unsettling spot uh, sometimes. Roz, very quickly, uh, wrap it up before I say goodbye. No, Patty, like I said, I just had to express how important it is to have a family doctor. It is important, you know, because these 811 numbers are not working. They do not know what you're going through. And they don't know nothing about you. Like I said, he gave me a couple of Addison authorities to help me through the pain. Now I'm living on Tynon and Advil. Just because I decided to push a little bit of snow when I thought I was well enough to do it. When the pain subsides, I tried to do a little bit of stuff myself. And I just want to know, people out there, how many more people are suffering like me. Thank you, Patty, for your time. Take good care, Roz. Okay, bye. All right, bye-bye. I see Gabriel is back there. Hopefully the connection is a bit better to talk about some upcoming wrestling. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's see if we get a better connection on one. Good morning, Gabriel. You're on the air. Hi. uh, Hopefully I can be a little bit better heard now. Not so bad so far. Go right ahead. All right. So. Uh, as I was trying to mention before, uh, Atlantic Championship Wrestling, uh, one of the newer promotions in Newfoundland, they're going to be partnering with the Newfoundland Rogues at Mary Brown Center tomorrow and Saturday night. So what does that partnership look like? Because I remember a number of years ago, I can't remember what team it was. Maybe it was with the St. John's Edge. There was a wrestling ring set up on the one end of the court, and there was some activity. So what's it going to look like this go-around? Uh, uh, As far as I'm aware, it's going to be pretty much the same ordeal. Uh, The main attraction here would be the the Newfoundland Rogues. That's the main bit there. But uh, as part of this partnership, during the uh, pregame and halftime, there's going to be a match from the ACW craft. So it's going to be a mixture of basketball and uh, professional wrestling. It's one uh, advantage that the basketball teams have that the hockey teams don't because you can do so much more on the floor and so much more access to players versus what is the concourse and the protected level downstairs during the hockey game. So basketball has a huge huge advantage to bring in crowds like you to have more and more entertainment for the folks in the seats. Uh, Indeed they are. And having... uh... Having this, having a partnership like this puts not only uh, basketball but also professional wrestling right on the map as far as Newfoundland goes. 
And so how do you maximize this, Gabriel? Because if you're trying to uh, encourage through the entertainment that's going to be provided at the Rogues game by the wrestlers, how do you translate that into getting them into your own shows, whether it be at uh, on Harvey Road or anywhere else where some of the uh, action takes place? So you're going to offer some incentives like uh, half-price tickets or 10 bucks for the first your first-timers or anything like that? Uh, I'm not sure if I'm at any liberty to discuss that, but uh, okay. there should be a... There should be some kind of, I guess, promotion or partnership that should put uh, people enough to come in to see the professional wrestling. And hopefully by seeing these uh, matchups in Mary Brown Center, they'll be more enticed to go to ACW shows in the future, whether that be in St. John's or anywhere else in Newfoundland. Sounds good. What kind of crowds do you get? Uh, under normal conditions, like not stadium, uh, we usually get couple hundred people um that previous uh that previous mary browns or i guess mile one center back then that previous stadium show that you mentioned i think the crowd there was 4100 people or something like that that's massive that's insanely massive for a newfoundland show um was that all local wrestlers to fill up 4100 seats uh, back then, I'm pretty sure it was all local. Yeah, I don't okay. think there was anybody outside of Newfoundland, not to my knowledge. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we're really hoping that a lot of people to- comes out to uh, see it. Uh, as far as tickets go, you can get them either on the Mary Brown Center website or you can grab it at the box office. You can go to the actual stadium and buy the tickets there. Um I'm pretty sure the earlier you get the tickets, the better seats you're going to get as far as, like, if you want, like, front row and all that sort of stuff. Fair enough, Gabriel. Good luck with it. Thank you, thank you. You're welcome. Take good care. Bye-bye. You too. I mean, wrestling is still enormously popular, and I think the last time I talked to Gabriel, I admitted that I don't really pay much attention to modern-day wrestling necessarily. I know lots of people watch it, and it doesn't really matter, obviously, if I watch it or not, but... The entertainment value is pretty great for a lot of folks. I mean, you see some of these uh, events on television, and they're filling up some of the biggest arenas in the world for people to watch professional wrestling. You know, fair enough. Uh, One topic that I didn't get to off the top, which I think is going to be important for us to understand, is when there's finally going to be legislation that they're calling Claire's Law. And this is a bit of a traumatic issue, but like most of these traumatic issues, we should indeed be talking about them. So, Newfoundland and Labrador is one of four provinces that have passed, or in the process of passing, pieces of legislation that allow women or men to access greater information about whatever risk they might be facing with their current partner. So, if you have a new relationship being formed and don't know much about this person's past, there will indeed be the opportunity to get that information because they're going to share it with you if you might be at risk to be uh, on the receiving end of domestic violence. So how exactly it's going to work, I'm not 100% sure. Maybe we can try to get the minister on, that would be Minister Hogan in particular here, exactly what is going to happen inside this uh, law. But it seems like it makes a lot, all the sense in the world. If people don't know your background and you have been av- abusive in the past, as a man or a woman, then it would be very helpful for your next romantic interest to be aware of that. 
So when the information, the, now the legislation was passed back in 2019, but it has not been yet proclaimed in the House of Assembly. We're told that's coming soon. There's been some uh, recent public consultations with what they always call the stakeholders that have uh, just recently been completed. So that's going to come. Now, the minister, of course, Minister Hogan, of Justice and Public Safety says, it's not the be-all and end-all, but it will allow people to get a bit more information so they can make informed decisions about who they spend time with and whatever risk may be associated with that. Also some questions. I'm not really sure what this question means about the potential for uh, the biggest work stoppage on the federal level in three decades based on the fact that now with PSAC having voted whatever they call overwhelmingly in support to approve a strike mandate, Add that to the vote results from CRA very recently. That means that there's the possibility of 155,000 public sector workers to be on strike sometime in the future, and it only requires 72 hours' notice. So uh, a lot of work, a lot of work will go by the wayside. A lot of government services will certainly be jeopardized, stalled, or halted in full if that comes to pass. Now, the question posed by one of the listeners is that, you know, at what point? does the cost to operate the government get so far out of hand because people have legitimate concerns with things like a $40 billion deficit, which is even $10 billion more than we thought it would be in the fall update. At what point do we reach the breaking point? Now, governments have not endless access, but a great deal more access than I do or you do or even provincial governments do to be able to sign these contracts, to be offering raises, even though the province has gone down that path in the recent past as well. But how is this going to work? I mean, uh, this is Mike. He's one of the guys asking the question. Is the possibility or the likelihood of being mandated legislatively back to work if indeed this comes to pass? Because the issue is being spoken about by not only the folks at CRA, but PSAC and their leadership, is they're talking about pay. Now... It costs a lot to run the federal government. No one's begrudging people the opportunity to negotiate what they consider to be a fair compensation for their background, their education, their experience, their seniority, what role they play in one department or another. And they say that their wages aren't keeping up with things like inflationary pressures, cost of living matters. Well, and again, this is not in an effort to be mean-spirited, but most of our wages aren't keeping up with that. So that seems to be the reality of life, whether you work in the public or the private sector. The vast majority of people, their pay is not keeping up with the pressures that we're all feeling. So that's one thing. Then it's working conditions. And this is what I find extremely interesting because I think the majority of Canadians think out loud that if you're working for the government, you have to be in the office to be held accountable, to be monitored, to be productive and effective. Productivity has long been a concern in this country, private and public sector. But for me, I, may, I think I'm probably in the minority. I'm not so concerned about where you're working. I'm just concerned that you are working and that you're working at the best level you can provide, day in and day out. People always mock uh, government about how many people it takes to do one task or what have you. I'm not really in, the, in that business. But if the productivity is up, if the benchmarks are being hit, if the work is being produced, if the work is top quality, I'm not really sure if I care a whole lot about where you are. If you are in the office you used to work at, in the Department of Health, or if you're doing that work at home, or if you're working for Service Canada, if you're getting the work done, I'm not so sure I care a whole, whole lot about where you're doing that work from. Now, again, I'm sure I'm in the minority there, and so be it. But I think if we're looking at productivity, the least of many people's worry is exactly where you're doing it. In 
many areas of the private sector, I know a couple of fellows who are professionals, and they haven't gone to the office since, oh, sporadically for some important meetings. They have, for the most part, been home since the uh, March of 2020. And some of them have had their very best years ever. Why? Because it just has that a little, now it's not for me. I don't want to work at home. I was glad throughout the pandemic I could actually come to the office, do the show from the studio versus in my basement. That was never something I wanted. But for some professionals, they just have that little bit of latitude so that they get their work done, but they also have the opportunity to maybe take a bit of downtime to catch a bit of sports center or go outside, go for a walk, never be too far away from their phone, never be too far away from their work. So they're getting things done. It's working for them, but can it or should it be something allowable inside the world of the public sector? The majority of Canadians, once again, think no. Last one, someone wanted me to reiterate what I said about people being asked for private information just to view a rental property. I haven't heard any of these stories here, but like most things, when you hear them elsewhere, they inevitably and eventually make their way to this province. The story was coming from Western Canada, that landlords were asking folks who were potential renters, even if they just wanted to view the rental property, not actually strike a formal deal for the property, is they were being asked for all kinds of uh, inappropriate personal information to be shared, like passports, driver's license, social insurance numbers, banking information, none of which is required to go in and look around a two-bedroom basement apartment as that might eventually or potentially be your home. So why they're doing that? Obviously, some of these folks are doing it for nefarious reasons. They get your information. All of a sudden, you get a legitimate call from a bank saying, you know, the X number of credit cards now in your name, one at BMO, one at the Royal Bank, one at Scotiabank. None of them were opened by you, but the information was provided to this bloke who went behind your back, stole your identity, and next thing you find yourself in sometimes an insurmountable hole. So that's happening in certain parts of the country. If you're a potential renter and you hear that ever happening here, please let us know, know so we can put out the warning once again because there's absolutely no need for anybody to have that information, for someone who simply wants to look around an apartment. Right, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your requests to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to opposition house leader, the PC member for Conception Bay South, Barry Petten. Good morning, Barry. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind, you? Oh, good, thanks. Uh, Patty, I wanted to call today to talk about the ongoing issue with the wage grid implementation for childcare operators and for ECEs and all of our childcare centres, which has been in the news and making news rounds for the last number of weeks. It's something I spoke out on, and I know probably you've spoken to some operators as well. And, you know, this is an issue I debated in the House of Assembly with Minister Hagee on numerous occasions, asked, you know, asked, asking questions, and the answers I was getting was, you know, everything is fine, it's all going to be implemented April 1st, in the meantime, that was supposed to be originally January 1st. Uh, you know, it's kind of a dismissive response that, you know, everything is fine, we've got an ADM in place now, and the contracts are signed, it's not my issue anymore, they can deal with the officials, and we got a town hall coming up, so this is all the messaging that's coming back from government, so... To you know, to the naked eye appears everything is fine, but <clears throat> I speak to a lot of the operators, and they've been reaching out to me on you know a regular occasion, regular, regularly actually, and we've you know we we're, we're hearing a lot of concerns. I mean, and that's not the case. I mean, they're being told one thing and not getting the other. There's no direction. I mean, they're 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 wondering where their money's to. Some people are meeting payroll. They don't know if they can make the payroll. 
uh, you know, they're asking for asking questions, and they went to a town hall April 11th. Now, this is supposed to be implemented April 1st, and they got some retro. They don't have all the retro. They asked questions, where's the rest of it? We'll get back to you. They asked another question. We're not sure. We never saw of that. Just one second. Uh, so <clears> what specific questions are we talking about? So like oh, operators are looking for, they're, they're, they're supposed to promise to have the retro by April 1st to pay their employees from January 1st to April 1st. So these people, ECs were owed the money. Plus, the increase in wage increase happened April 1st. So they're not being, they weren't provided the monies to increase the wage, and they're not being given the retro money to pay the ECs as well. So, this is, you know, and they're asking, their employees are wanting over their monies too. So they're going to a town hall and they're asking these questions, and the answer they're getting is, you know, we'll get back to you. We're not sure. We never thought of that. Uh, it's we got it paid, and then they turn around. They're telling everyone it's all paid, and it's not actually paid because a lot of home care operators, child care operators, don't have the money. The better way to describe it, Patty, to me, from what I've heard, and I've heard a lot of information, it's, it's like one big mess. But then you got a minister that's very dismissive, and when you ask the questions, it's like they're, they're, they're washing their hands of this issue. And I mean, one quote from a you know a child care operator in my own district, actually, and, uh, uh, and it's not a good situation. My 35 years of child care, she said, it's the worst I've ever seen it. I mean, and these people are reaching out to us. They're frustrated because they're reaching out to government and not getting the answers. I mean, they sat in the House of Assembly the week before last to express frustration, and they never got they got even more frustrated by the answers and the responses from Minister Aggie. I mean, we we said, I mean, you know, we're trying to help, you know, facilitate a program that the government implemented. They were, they were very happy about. I mean, Premier Fury is one of his, you know, they were happy to have $10 a day child care, crowning achievement for the prime minister. And all is fine. I mean, no one, no one on our side, me, especially me, think it's a bad thing. But as for, as my plan in, it was very poor planning. I mean, they implemented this program, and then there wasn't a lot. The legwork wasn't done before. The, so it was one of them rush announcements. You know, you, you announce it, but yet you don't do your legwork. And when, what happens if, if that happens? What you're seeing now it turns into a total mess and chaos. There's a lot of frustration and confusion by these operators and these early childhood educators because everyone wants to be paid. But the, those operators also got to bear the brunt of this this increase. Sure. And then a lot of them don't have that financial backing, Patty. Some got, some can do it. Now they've told me they can, but they can't do it for a long haul. I get some that can't. And I mean, when you're and the frustrating issue, probably most frustrating is, is the lack of responses and uh, from government. I mean, and the answers I get. I mean, I've been you know speaking to them loudly on it. Is like I get a dismissive response. And it's very frustrating, actually. You try to give people opportunity to get it right, but now we're into pushing the middle of April, and there's still no further ahead. So, I mean, everybody are very frustrated, and rightly so. This is not a new issue, though. And for me, it's not necessarily directly related to $10 a day. This wage subsidy that was introduced before we did any of this $10 a day stuff was the way it is and continues to be today. You know, I know uh, daycare operators that are using their floating line of credit to cover for the lag time between submission, submitting any invoices to government and getting the money back in that wage subsidy. So this precedes $10 a day, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, that's what you're referring to there is the operating grant issue, and I deal with that. I've been dealing with that for years. You're correct. I get up, child care operators in my district are, are owed tens of thousands of dollars, and they're waiting to get their money. And we're, we, my office will be calling out, trying to push it along, trying to get their payments. So this, you're right, that part has been lagging payments has gone on for way too long. But now you're going to you're compounded it because now you've implemented a wage grid on top of that. So you're basically getting your operating grant plus, including that now, is this wage grid increase to 20 
$75 an hour and the retro. And it's, that's, that's true in the same, you know, basically same mess, if you ask me. And there's no, I mean, there's, there's no direction down this year. So you're right. It's not new. That part is not new, but the wage grid is new. And I, if you compound it, okay. already bad problem into a bigger one. So what are we talking about insofar as solutions? Is this simply just bureaucracy in action, or is there something more to it? Uh, probably, it, it may be some of that, Patty, you know, and I, and I mean, when I look at plans in place and government to making announcements and implementation of stuff, I mean, that's as it's falls squarely on government themselves. You can't blame the bureau, bureaucrats for it. So, I mean, they're taking marching orders from, the, you know, the minister and from administration. So, it, you know, I, I think it's, it would be unfair for me to blame bureaucrat because I think that they, you know, their plates are full. Maybe it's not enough of them, you know, maybe they're, maybe they're tasked with something that they were not prepared for. Maybe they're not given enough direction, but ultimately this falls back on the minister. And, 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 and government, because, I mean, you bring in a new program and you're starting off on these agreements with federal, you know, and federal federal government, which is all sounds great, but uh, you need you need to probably take a pause for a second before you've done all that and then look to where we we're to in our, clean your own house and to get it right, because there's another bigger problem, Patty, and it, uh, is, it, gets, it gets complex, but in Newfoundland, we're dealing with 70% of our operators are private for profit. And the program, this federal program, is more designed for not-for-profit, and this this creates a whole different different issue, and it's, it's creating a lot of obstacles for the operators. So it's compounding, it's compounding the many issues. But I keep saying no plan. They should have thought this out better. And you got a group that were supposed to be consulted with. They were going to these meetings, supposedly having meetings, meeting with government, to discuss this, the rollout of this program, and they were getting a little. Some most of these meetings canceled. The minister never showed up. The most of them, I don't think he showed up to any, and they were feeling feeling like they were treated this all before now they were telling me they felt like they were getting treated with disrespect so i mean you know you see there's been a problem you could see this rise and i could see this months ago coming but then when you ask government everything was fine we have everything under control obviously they don't petty and now we're seeing the results of it yeah and i didn't mean it's a bureaucrat's problem it's the structure of the bureaucracy that moves sometimes at a snail's pace simply mm-hmm. based on how it's constructed or structured as opposed to one person's dropping the ball this kind of where I was going. Uh, very quickly, let's let's talk a little education beyond early childhood for a second. So, because you're the shadow minister yep. for both. So, you know, we talk about, and rightfully so, issues in the healthcare system and shortages and recruitment and retention and all the way up and down the line. But we don't give a lot of focus to the exact same issues inside the K-12 system. We hear from the NLTA, and uh, hopefully we're going to speak with Trent Langdon at some point tomorrow if he has time. But no, not much in the way of solutions being offered there you know we're dangling all sorts of bonuses and incentives out in the healthcare world but inside the ranks of teachers in particular whether it be permanent full-times and or substitutes why are we not talking about that well, you know, uh, Patty, I spoke about that a couple of weeks back in the House to the minister, and I agree with you, by the way. It needs more attention. And, I mean, he basically told me there's recruitment and retention pro- uh, uh, conversation going on between them and the NLTA. And, again, it's this dismissive response I get. And uh, I've spoke to the NLTA, and I hear I heard their concerns loud and clear. I mean, they're short on people. Without the retirees, the system is at max, is at breaking point. Uh, you got teachers in there that skip their lunch break. They skip their, like, their... their they're making it work because they take a lot of pride in their individual schools. That's what I've been told. So we're not seeing the full effects of it because they got a lot of pride, not you know, not not, not letting Holy Spirit be the, be just you know on the news every night or people complain. They're making things work or whatever school, for example, I use those examples in my district. But the problem the problem problem with it is that 
they they're looking for they want more time to get to do the work, and the only way to get more time is more manpower or you know people power, I should say. And they're not getting. I mean, the only way you're going to get that is recruitment. So you're right. There needs to be more attention paid to that. We're doing it in healthcare, and education is equally as important as our. I mean, healthcare and education are our top two issues, obviously. So you, to your point. To your, to your point, is, is right. We need to pay more attention to it. And sometimes, when you take your eye off the ball, which happened in healthcare for a number of years, we see the, we see what happened. Unfortunately, the same thing can happen in education. So, you no, know, your point's not lost on me. And it's something that we have spoke about. And we, and I mean, recently two weeks ago, I was questioning the minister in the house on this. But again, he came back and told me that they're having conversations about a recruitment, a retention program for teachers, and the conversations have gone with the NLTA and. But what I heard yesterday from, uh, from Trent Langdon at the Biennial, I don't think that's the case. So I, I think that, uh, again, once again, I think uh, Minister Aggie needs to probably provide some clarification because when I heard, uh, when I heard uh, Mr. Langdon talk yesterday, that's not, uh, that's not what I heard at all. Fair enough. Appreciate the time for me, Barry. Okay, Patty. Thanks a lot. Take good care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Barry Patton is the Opposition House Leader. He's the Shadow Minister for Education and Early Childhood Education. And, of course, he's the member for CBS. Let's take a break. When we come back, whatever's on the go is up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, as noted by a listener via Twitter, saying the early childhood educator bureaucrats at the director level are extremely well informed and have been trying their very best to do the right thing for as long as this person has known them. That's been about 10 years. She says the current issues have come from political decisions made without proper infrastructure in place. And that is not an uncommon uh, outcome when we have what is a feel-good political announcement that sounds very encouraging, but of course it's everything behind that. Not only the thought process to come up with that particular announcement, but to ensure that when you announce it, you have, you're ready to hit the ground running. And you have the infrastructure and the people in place and the processes in place that make it manageable, whether it be for the operators or early childhood educators themselves and for families who are looking at these announcements of $10 a day and saying, that sounds great to me. But then, of course, is whether it be accessibility to a space is quite another. And then just speak with Barry Petten. And, of course, talk about some education. And someone said via an email that, why didn't you ask him about the appropriateness of things like chat GPT in the classroom? Because we had indeed talked about that earlier with Kevin Andrews, who's a tech teacher and a digital blogger. I guess the reason for me is I'm not so sure we need at this stage for politicians to be making these types of decisions. What we need, as far as I'm concerned, is we need the understanding at the department level uh, for those who are administrators and the working groups that they're involved with and teachers themselves to see what's happening, to understand how it could or should be applied, whether or not it can be utilized as an effective learning tool as opposed to a replacement for motivation to learn and or critical thought because there are some inherent risks and red flags associated with this particular platform. Don't take it from me. Take it from the documented stories, whether it be from university professors and or columnists who are tinkering around with this artificial intelligence to see how it works, to understand how it works, and then consequently getting all kinds of red flags coming back after simple inputs based on things that they know to be true or not. One was a reference to a Toronto Star uh, journalist. And they put in things that could be very easily reflective of work that this person does on the beat that they're on and things that they plausibly could have written just to get back things that were complete nonsense. Couldn't be verified because they didn't exist. And then there was a chat GPT uh, paper submitted to an Oxford professor, and they very clearly said it had connected a scientific or an academic uh, piece of research that was quoted in the paper, but it couldn't be verified that it existed because it didn't. So 
as much as I don't know about uh, this particular artificial intelligence, I do think we all know enough that now that it's here, there's no going back. Kevin Andrews referred to it as the Pandora's box has been opened, and a large part is 100% right. Because once we have these potential boxes open, there's no stuffing that genie back in that proverbial bottle. So how we understand it, how we use it, you know, some of it will happen at the family level. Mom and dad, maybe with your own student, wherever they are in the system, I guess it gets a little bit more tangly when we're talking about post-secondary students and the age of which they would be. But that's why I don't ask politicians, because there's not really a political issue here quite yet. You know, until we're talking about banning stuff, and I think we're all a little bit tired of a lot of the banning that's been going on at the political level, simply some based on ideology versus what's actually happening in the world. So on this front, I guess what we need is whoever the next Tony Stack, I guess that's Terry Hall at this moment in time, virtually taking over the role that Mr. Stack had played when the school district was a standalone entity. But we need the educators to be guiding this particular conversation, whether that be at the Memorial University level, and I think, yes, absolutely in junior high and high school, because the youth of today are so tech-savvy. It's really remarkable to see it in action. And so I'm going to surmise that many young people in junior high and high school are much more tech-savvy than we give them credit for. And it's not just the ability to play a game or to interact with social media, whatever the case may be. They understand a lot of the tech. And when they see this tool out there, whether they want to use it the right way or whatever the wrong way means, they're going to. So we've got to figure it out because it's here, and it is absolutely here to stay. And this is not just a scholastic application. This will be part of doing business. It 100% will be. And some artificial intelligence is already deeply uh, embedded inside business and industry at this moment in time. Okay, today might be a good day to get on the program. If you're so inclined, want to bring up a topic of your choosing and or expand on something you've heard here on the program. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211 or elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. This is a request coming from a listener. We talk about moose licenses and the fact that in some moose management areas the only decrease in licenses has been for the locals not for the outer provinces or the outfitters they're not exactly one and the same but there's obviously an overlap and this person here says that the outfitters in this community-based area where he lives i'll kind of leave it out because i'm not sure he mentioned it is that the outfitters shot 26 bulls in that community-based area and then you compare that to the access to a license bull or otherwise for a local and we've got ourselves a problem Right, We absolutely do. Someone else says that if you're using success rates as the measurement tool, it doesn't really mean much. Fair enough. But what would be a more accurate tool to use? Because, yes, you know, if you have an average age of hunter, as Brian quoted yesterday, that might be creeping up there. The want and the willingness and the ability to trek through the woods and the bogs and the barrens for 12 or 14 hours in an effort to scope out your moose might not be happening. But if you don't think success rates are the best idea or the best measure, then what do you think is? Because we're happy to have that conversation as well. Let's go to line number two. Sam, you're on the air. Good day, sir. How are you today? Very well, thanks, Sam. How are you doing? Uh, vertical and breathing. Couldn't ask any better, I guess. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> I uh, I copied you on a letter I sent off to uh, Mr. Ken McDonald, our MP out this way. I live out in the Bay Roberts area. Um. I have a big problem with this CERB money being clawed back because somebody in their infinite wisdom 
had uh, made a mistake and sent out too much. Now, they're looking for the money to be returned, as per usual with the federal government, as soon as you can possibly take it out of your back pocket. Uh, and, and I got a problem with that because the reason you get CERB money in the beginning is because you're not independently wealthy. You needed the money to exist. Well, the CERB was specifically for folks who had a reduction in hours or got laid off. Yes, and I was laid off because the government asked us all to go home because they didn't want so many people working together in the workplace. Okay. When did so, you send me an email, Sam? Um, I sent the email the weekend, and this one I put as a CC to uh, open line. So okay. it, it wasn't directly to you, I guess. I'll have a look for it because I don't recall seeing a, a Sam email about sir. But anyway, continue on, sir. Um, I was... I, it's it's kind of a long story if you want to look at it over the years because our previous prime ministers have dipped into the EI fund for a few millions of dollars because they figured they needed it for something that they were doing and it has never been paid back but yet you know you've got people like myself who are I guess classed as the working poor or whatever you want to call us I'm 70, and i got to still work 40 hours a week along with my Canada pension and old age security to make ends meet. I live by myself, so, you know, it, it's kind of tight on times. Paying your insurances, your light bill, your food, and all that kind of stuff, keeping a vehicle on the road, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, same as everybody. But i got a problem where they have now decided to let CRA start taking money from me, whether it be my income tax or a big portion of my major big GST rebate check once every three or four months. You know, I don't know where to go with it, but I'd sure like to start a movement where we teach the government to stop doing this foolishness. They're going to start collecting carbon tax. Why not take that carbon tax to cover the deficit that has been left because somebody in the EI corporation has made a mistake and sent out too much money. Yeah, I think the whole issue with EI versus CERB is just a little bit different. Uh, a couple of things. So when politicians, and you're absolutely right, they dipped into the EI fund, but they, you know what? That's not even government money. EI money is uh, people paying off their paychecks, contributing to employment insurance for if and when they're ever eligible or need EI. So that wasn't even their money to begin with. That was ridiculous. So the CERB money was money we borrowed, but it didn't come from me. It came from whatever lenders or whoever bought the bonds. And the money that's been paid out, look, I understand your concern. Let me see what you think about this. If someone got money from the government that they weren't eligible for, consequently didn't deserve, should there not be some mechanism for that money to go back to the government? Oh, yes, if we didn't deserve it. But because they made the mistake with our money, which is, as you said, an employee and employer's contributions, not the federal government, now they're starting to claw it back from people who really, sure, okay, I got overpaid $2,000 over a two-and-a-half or a three-month span. I couldn't get that money unless I answered the questions that they sent out to me every time so as I could get money. So it's not like I was illegal. I didn't tell lies. I didn't do anything wrong. I answered the questions, and they sent me the money. And it wasn't until a year and a half later I found out they sent me too much. Yeah. 
you know, those circumstances are difficult to understand what we could and should be doing. Some people just had no idea that they were doing something wrong. One specific group of folks uh, on the SERP were some self-employed Canadians. They had no idea they were doing something wrong because it was not spelled out in the program itself for eligibility. So they did what they were told was available to them just to find out they got to pay it all back. So there's been a lot of confusion. The SERP felt and sounded like a really helpful idea at the beginning, but now it's becoming as much a tax or a clawback burden for so many people. Yes, and the worst thing is when it goes to CRA for for um, repayment, then you're paying it back and you will get charged interest if you don't pay it back the way they want it paid. Are they applying is, interest to it? I, I'm, I'm only assuming because if CRA wants money, you get interest charged to it to a certain degree. Yeah, absolutely. When it's a tax-related matter, I thought that I had asked the government official, and I'll clarify this, that were there going to be compound interest charged on CERB clawbacks? And at that time, I'm pretty sure they told me no, but I'll go back to the well and I'll figure that out because now it's becoming more and more of an issue. Uh, I appreciate this this morning, Sam. And once I get a chance, if I find that letter again, I will send it again for you to have a look at. Please do. Thank you, sir. I appreciate your time. I sure hope there's a lot more people speaking out on this because I really do believe our, our federal government needs to be held accountable for money they take that was really not theirs to take. Fair ball. Thanks for this, Sam. You have a wonderful day, sir. Thanks for the time. My pleasure. Bye-bye. And, you know, there was one specific group. It was always going to be the case because CERB was taxable income. So first people were encouraged to put some of the tax uh, obligations aside so that they didn't run into a buzzsaw at tax time and not have any of the money required and consequently paying absolutely interest on uh, overdue taxes. Just in the world, because when we do things like your net family income to see if you're eligible for GST or any of those types of things, same thing went for uh, qualifying or eligible for things like child benefits, child benefit payments. So in just one year alone, the government had to pay out $1.45 billion less in child benefit payments because of CERB. Some of these families were pushed over the threshold for eligibility. It's really quite something. Uh, one more time, Dave wants me to give out the numbers before we get to the news. St. John's Metro, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Conrad, you're on the air. Hello. Good Hello. morning. Good morning to you. Uh, I'm uh, I'm calling uh, to talk about the price of groceries and gas going up. It's like uh, every time you go to the grocery store, the price of groceries are like, you know, you you know, a certain thing's gone up and stuff, right? And uh, sugar tax, a lot of people are having pretty hard times pretty much uh, dealing with the price of groceries pretty much, right? Yeah, I mean, are, like, for instance, are you still paying a sugar tax or have you decided to buy products that the tax is not applied to? Uh, well, in some cases, you really got no choice, right? Because, like, you know, what makes no sense to me, and uh, the, one of the main reasons I'm calling is because, like, okay, you can go to the grocery store, right? And you can, you know, 
buy a few things and try and stay away from stuff with sugar. But there's almost, it's almost impossible, right? You got to buy a few things with sugar. So you now with this extra fee, sugar tax and stuff, right? But check this out. You go buy a bag of sugar. There's no tax on a bag of sugar. That's right. <laughs> right? It don't add up. And another thing is, I watch the news there, like I watch news every evening. And there about a month ago, give or take three or uh, three weeks to a month ago, there was a fellow on the news, right, talking about uh, why uh, some of the reasons why, uh, what do you call it, the sugar tax and the price of gas is going up, right? And he mentioned that uh, one of the reasons could be, he said, is due to the fact that uh, there was like some kind of bird flu and like the uh, loss of a lot of chickens. So they increased the price of chickens. So technically, if you look at it, they're trying to get us to pay for chickens to pass away that we don't eat. That don't add up. Right? Say that again? We're paying for dead chickens? Okay, that there, there was a guy on the news, like a government fella, that went ahead and said on the news, on NTV, that uh, one of the reasons why prices of gas and sugar is going up, uh, no, groceries, I mean, right? He said the, uh, one of the reasons is because there was a bird flu or uh, uh, that killed a lot of chickens. Yeah, so, okay, so cost recovery for chicken producers, distributors, and grocery stores. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so the thing is, they were losing chickens, technically, right? So when that happened, the price of chickens went up. People didn't notice, right? The price of chickens went up. So when that went up, it's like more or less we're paying for chickens we're not getting. Yeah, that was an industry thing, you know, as opposed to what people call a gouge. Because, for instance... There was one die-off at one particular chicken farm, which we were talking hundreds of thousands of birds. Unbelievable. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I know they had to get the money somewhere. Don't get me wrong. But like, if I don't go up and don't buy no chicken, that's not right to the people who don't buy chicken. Right? Okay. You know, right? And then when I, go buy, when I go buy the chicken, the chickens skyrocketed because other chickens died. Right. right? I mean, there's lots of different influences on how and why we've seen prices go up on a variety of products. And I think the biggest problem with all of that is that when prices go up and they go up so quickly and by such wide margins, it's hard to picture them coming back to earth. I think that's the larger problem in the long run is are we actually going to see some prices when things like global supply chains and what have you are restored? Are we going to see any uh, pain relief at the grocery store? I'm thinking no. Well, that's like even like uh, with groceries. Like I live away and I don't drive, but I have my license, but I can't afford a car. So I got to take a taxi to go get groceries, me and my brother. And it costs almost $120 just to go get groceries before you even go in the grocery store. So when the gas goes down, the, the taxi price don't go down. It don't add up. My opinion about law is that where people got a lot of that COVID that wasn't supposed to get it, I actually think really what happened there, this is the way they're getting their money back. Jack the groceries, jack the gas, show sugar tax, carbon tax. It's a possibility. Yeah, but uh, I, those additional spends by the consumer – that other than in the form of taxes being paid, that money's going to private sector companies. So I don't think that's much of a cost recovery issue for a serve money out the door, price of groceries, because unless it's a prepared item in the grocery store, you're not paying tax on it. So it doesn't have a whole big implication with money's flowing to either level of government. Yeah. 
See, people people got to buy less now or, like, go for stuff that's on sale. And the way I look at it, if it's going on sale, it's like, okay, say someone, say if the chicken is very expensive up there one day, right? And people go out and say, geez, I can't afford chicken. So all the people don't buy chicken. That grocery store now got a load of chickens now. It's either got to lower the price or, you know, find, find some means of make a deal in order to sell their chickens, right? Yeah, I mean, inevitably, that happens with most products in the grocery store that are perishable, is when it comes time for them to be no longer uh, able to sell because of expiry dates or whatever. And there's another conversation we had there, but yeah, that's where you you find things on sale. And like never before, I've never been carefree with money because i don't have much money but yeah i'm I'm same way like i you know when when i have money i gotta i I gotta stretch it in order to survive right yeah and but the point i was going to make is i would have never in years past be someone to look at all the flyers i just would take them off the hook on the door and i'd put them on the counter maybe my wife or someone might uh, leaf through them i never did but now i do (laughs) and i do all the time why because i need a deal now I, now I do, but, like, if you've got to go and buy, like, fruit and stuff like that, like, one time ago, it wasn't too bad, right? probably about three, three years ago, give or take, right? And uh, now when you go, so you got to shop around, and you save in one spot. You spend it in another spot, so you don't, you don't gain for losing. Well, <laughs> it, it, that all depends, right? And a lot of that comes to uh, where you live. Like, I can, yeah, in a stone's throw... Go to Coleman's, Dominion, Sobeys very, very quick because they're not that far apart. And I can indeed achieve savings if I'm willing to go to three different shops for a week load of groceries or whatever. So, again, if it's somewhere where you've got to travel great. Yeah, Yeah, I know what it's like out there. It's a little, you've got more options out that way, right? Exactly. So I can do it differently. The best one out there I noticed was uh, Cash and Carry or President's Choice used to get the best deals. Well, yeah, I I think best deal is a bit of a floating target or a moving target these days, but I'm looking for yeah. them all the time. Oh yeah, that's what you got to do. You know, I I think if Newfoundland Newfoundland Labrador was an independent country again, I think it'd do awful lot better. Yeah, I because I don't. Our, our, I don't the problems so. should be the richest problems. Got gas, all mines, and the fishery and this that, and you know. Every time you get a new government, it keeps changing, and one government, if they make a mistake, then the other one going to clean up the mistake, and sometimes they don't, so it's like mistake building on mistakes sometimes, right? Fair enough. Uh, you know, government mistakes is a, <laughs> a pretty broad conversation, but I appreciate making time for the show this morning. Conrad, you say you, I, I just read between the lines, you don't live in this region. Where do you live, if you don't mind saying? Uh, I live around the Carmel area. Okay, fair enough. Appreciate okay. you making time. Thanks for this. All right, bye. Bye bye. Yeah, the relationship between, I mean, there's so many different reasons as to why we're paying what we're paying. Like, for instance, if something comes from South or Central America and makes its way through the States, at some point it got priced in American dollars. And we do know exchange, rate, exchange rates will have an impact there. And then there's absolutely influence on some of the floods and droughts that we've seen in this country and certainly in the United States. And there is a, there is a place for the whole supply chain and what that's meant. And then, of course, you know, the executives at the major grocers hauled in front of a parliamentary committee talking about their margins, their revenues, their profits. But again, who gets to say or tell one company, one industry or another, what is an acceptable level of profit? I don't know. 
I mean, we talk about wealth tax or windfall taxes or whatever, but who gets to draw that line? Let's go ahead and take our final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number two. Linda, you're on the air. Hello. Hi. Uh, yes, uh, there was a caller on a little bit earlier, the gentleman. He was talking about the CERB. Yep. Uh, I'm a student assistant, and every summer I file my unemployment to get unemployment for the two months that I'm off work. And uh, when the CERB came into effect, I filed my unemployment like I normally do and just assumed I wasn't entitled to the CERB. And they started sending me out to CERB, and several months later, when I went to uh, my Christmas break, when I went to check and see how many stamps I had left or whatever, they told me, oh, your stamps are gone. It's the same story over and over when it comes to employment insurance being put right on the CERB, absolutely, yep. Yeah, like the guy assumed the stamps would be there, or at least some of them, and the lady I spoke to said, no, they're gone. And then you still end up having to pay so much money back because it's a little bit hard when you're off in the summer, uh, you know, trying to put that extra way to save, you know, for repayment and that. Sure. Just let me ask you a question. I haven't had unemployment, so I don't really know a whole lot about the system. So let's say because people will work for their X number of weeks and those always refer to as stamps, how long do they last? Like, for instance, if I had a... If I won $50,000 but I was unemployed and I wanted to wait to file for my unemployment because I currently have some money in my pocket, how long do the stamps or the week's work actually last before they are no longer eligible, uh, meet the eligibility requirements for EI? Do you no, know? I'm pretty sure you only have a year. Okay, I thought so. Yeah, you have a year because, uh, like I said, every summer I file for my unemployment and I get my stamps and then I'm back to work in September. But like I said, it's only a year, and there's actually been varying amounts of weeks that you're entitled to, depending on whatever way they're doing the unemployment program at the time. Because I've had times when, okay, I'm entitled to 23 weeks, and other times it's 17 weeks, and, you know, so you're never quite sure. And I imagine there have been other people out there that assumed they were getting their unemployment and uh, got the CERB instead. And like I said, and lost your sense. I would imagine you wouldn't be alone on that front. And, you know, there's lots of different implications coming home to roost here with the CERB recipients and tax obligations or clawback obligations. And it's a variety of different groups, not just the circumstance that you described, but there's all kinds. Self-employed people, people who didn't maybe uh, stoke or, or, pardon me, put aside a little bit for taxes, uh, yeah. families who were getting child benefit payments, and those have been jeopardized. People put over certain income thresholds that have maybe even in some cases knocked people out of the eligibility for pharmaceutical plans for the pharmacare plans too so it's had some problems as much as it felt good when people were getting two thousand dollars a month now all of a sudden we're figuring out that it wasn't quite that simple no and they just sent that seemed to send it out to anybody you know without uh, knowing that they qualified for it or not because i know people who didn't qualify for it uh were on social assistance and things like that and got the money yeah, that's being dealt with, though. I mean, for folks yeah. who willfully, knowingly applied for a CERB and they knew full well they weren't eligible for it, they're seeing a clawed back. Now, there's a fair debate to be had on that front as to whether or not that makes the most sense in the world. But, yeah, if folks who legitimately should not have received it, it's being uh, repaid or they're losing certain amounts off their check to see that amount covered. Yep. 
Yes, and that's the thing too. Like I said, if you are a, a, a social assistance recipient, then you're not getting a fortune. So to try and, and uh, take payments out of it, there's not a lot there to take payments out of. No, you're right. I mean, they're getting in some form of pittance in the first place. So pittance yeah. minus clawback is doesn't create the best set of circumstances. I know people want, for folks who shouldn't have got the money, a lot of people want them to have to pay it back. But I don't think we've included what that really means in real terms for individuals and their families. If you're getting very little to begin with, getting less is not really solving anything. You know, because dribs and drabs of repayment or clawbacks is going to take years to satisfy. And exactly. then how further ahead is anybody, including, most importantly, the individual. But I, I get the thought. I just don't think we've thought it all the way through. Yeah, uh, and I can understand, like I said, some of the you know, people on social assistance or whatever taking the money because, like I said, they are getting a pittance. You talk about, you know, like uh, poverty line and... Uh, you know, and whatever, and like I said, these people that uh, need the social assistance, but like I said, they're not getting enough money to live. There's a lot of truth to that. Linda, I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you for calling. Okay, thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, last word this morning goes to line number four. Vic, you're on the air. Good morning, Pat, and you're listening to the audience. Thank well, you for taking my call. Happy to do it. What's on your mind? Uh, my topic uh, uh, today, I was reading a letter in the paper there, I think December, December month, I think regarding the school lunch program. Okay. Association is really down for money. They were requesting people to uh, donate, uh, and I think they were looking for, I believe it was five, a half million dollars. Oh. Now, they also, I think that letter also they had, a, uh, I think, a report there from a psychiatrist saying that children cannot learn on an empty stomach. Uh, now, the, I think another, about a month ago, there was another letter, in the, I think, uh, reference to the school lunch program. And I think it was from the CEO of the Homeless uh, Association. Now, I, this was interesting. He pointed out that there was nothing in the uh, provincial budget uh, for the school program, there was nothing given by the provincial government, and he also pointed out that the federal government didn't have anything in their budget for the school program. He also pointed out that uh, Canada is one of the few G7 countries that do not contribute to uh, the school program. Now that's news for me. Yeah, that don't have a national school lunch program. They don't. That's right. So yeah. I mean, this is something terrible that we have children going to school hungry, I mean, and they can't afford to, uh, you know, the lunch program. I was having serious uh, financial problems with uh, obtaining enough money to uh, produce those uh, lunches. So that's why I thought I'd call if the politicians, both federally and uh, provincially, are listening. Uh, let's get on the ball and get, you know, see what they can do there. A federal plan that makes a lot of sense to me, given the fact the recent numbers that we've seen for uh, people and who they are that are utilizing or using food banks, one in four food bank users are children in this country. I mean, that's a remarkable stat when you think about it out loud. So, and you're right, the only G7 country without a national school lunch program. There's different programs from province to province, and there's a huge difference in funding from the government. If we talk about Kids Eat Smart versus the School Lunch Association, when a healthy lunch is also a pretty important uh, feature of going to school. But it's also really quite a sad commentary that for so many children in Canada, school is one of those sure fireplaces where they can get something to eat. 
I mean, oh. it's just unbelievable. Oh, yes. Uh, yes. It's hard to believe, actually, that our children are our most precious resource. And if, if certainly, if, if, if they were saying, if they go to school on, on an empty stomach, they cannot learn, learn you know? I think it's terrible. I think that's well understood. It's one of the key selling features when we're trying to help either Kids Eat Smart or the School Lunch uh, Association fill up their coffers because that's absolutely true. It's they can more stable emotions, less or fewer children, pardon me, going home with sore bellies. It's got a behavioral component. It's got the ability to focus and to learn components. So there's oh, a lot to yes, it. It's, it's terrible. So hopefully our, our federal representative and uh, uh, provincial representative listening, maybe they can uh, do something about that. You know? Yeah, anyway, the call. Thank you for taking my call, Pat. I appreciate your time, Vic. Have a nice day, sir. You too. Take uh, care. Bye now. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, he's he's right. When we look around the G7 for the most advanced uh, economies in the world, and we are the only one without a national school lunch program, and there's, I think, a lot of benefit to that conversation. Some people might think, well, come on, if you have children, you've got to be able to feed them. But that's not necessarily the reality for a lot of folks. You know, because things have changed dramatically here in the last, not only three years, but in the last 10 years. So if you look at the, you know, shameful to have to put a cost-benefit analysis towards children's health, but I guess people want to do that. I think there's a good argument to be made as to why there's a lot of upsides uh, to having children properly fed, especially at school. Anyway, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning. Right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.